Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You, yes, you, listener. Did you know that everybody at History Hack works for free? And as much fun as that is, it would be great if we could garner just a little bit of support for all of the time and effort that goes in to producing the show. Uh, I have a cat that needs food. Zach has Airfix models to buy. And Boney, well, Boney likes books. So if you can chuck us a couple of quid as a one-off by Kofi or subscribe to Patreon, we would much appreciate it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. Before we do anything today, it is a celebratory event, which is why we're all wearing silly hats, even though you can't see us, it means nothing to you. Uh, It is a celebration today because the latest one of us has managed to drag their arse over the line and finish a book and get it out without killing themselves or someone else. Kit, congratulations! Thank you very much. Yeah, my, my book is out in Star March. Racing Green. How motorsport, how motorsport can save the planet, isn't it? Sort it's of. how motorsport science can save the world, yeah. It's, it's all about uh, green technologies that have spun out of motorsport and motor racing in the past hundred years. Lots of kind of geeky science and geeky motorsport stories. You are back in the UK though, aren't you? I am. I've just arrived from Thailand uh, essentially a day and a half ago. Um, so it was 35 degrees and it was beautiful and now it's cold and wet and there's a storm coming. So good choice by me. You didn't even get welcomed home by your tortoise because he's still in the fridge, right? Yeah, he's a grumpy little um, turnip and he's in the fridge and he's rotated slightly. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, we're all wearing silly hats apart from James. You didn't get the memo because um, there was no memo. Uh, Beth is wearing a policeman's helmet. Have you stolen yeah. Your husband, yeah, it's the only hat I could easily find. I don't wear hats, so I have to go and find. And it's an impressive hat. It is, although it covers your eyes, which is quite amusing. <laughs> it's too the big. West, the West Midlands still there? Are you not right in the path of this storm thingy? We are, yes, right in the centre of it. I think Amber with the warning for here, so I will be staying inside with my books and staying safe. I love it. She's like, no gym for me, just chocolate. The new. <laughs> told me it had to be so of course i'm not going to risk my life for the gym <laughs> it was for a milkshake she would oh <laughs> no i get them i get them to bring me the milkshake to me but afters decided they weren't delivering all of a sudden or whatever they call it there would not be horrified horrified you would uh you have just heard heather's voice heather is wearing her knitted night helmet that she got at the tower of london when she went in search of the tackiest souvenir possible heather how is ohio rainy and cold so we're supposed to get freezing rain tonight can't wait excellent but you don't have a lot of foot of snow anymore that's a good thing ice is worse okay i just uh, one day you will say something nice about ohio when i ask you that question 
not likely. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, you'll be unsurprised to know that Chris Sams is wearing his replica German Admiral's helm- helmet hat. Chris, how are you? I've been wearing this most of the day. <laughs> Living the life of a country gentleman, in but in Medway? Yeah, yeah. Not really done much today or week or fortnight, but yeah. Yeah, it's been good. How are you guys? <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Mrs. Charlotte White is wearing a very snazzy beret. And if you've been to her house, people, you will know that she has basically an entire shelf in her personal dressing room that is just multicoloured berets. Uh, and she's actually gone for burgundy tonight because it matches her lipstick. Yay! I am that ridiculous, Alex. I am that ridiculous. It's brilliant. I just, I, I'm wearing my. The only hat I own, because I have a tiny head, because look what happens if I pull it down to all that. <laughs> this is my... Fleet. Alex, go and get the face mask so they can see how really tiny your head is. Shut up. You don't get to judge me with your trotters instead of feet. <laughs> I'm wearing my replica ski hat, uh, my script official license concert. Why they think you'd need a fleece-lined bubble hat in a concert where it's quite warm anyway, I don't know. Charlotte, how are you? What have you been up to? Well, today I got in a Twitter feud with Margaret Beaufort, um, which was quite fun. She was saying that she's like, you know, really upset because she's always being portrayed as scheming and evil in fiction, but actually she was really saintly and awesome and humble. To which I replied with a gif of Trixie Mattel, one of my favorite drag queens, saying, oh honey, because she's not humble. Then she replied with a gif of Katya, another drag queen, like flipping her hair. So I replied with another picture of Trixie and Katya. Turns out we both like the same drag queens. We get on really well. And it would not be quite so weird if Margaret Beaufort hadn't been dead for 500 years. <laughs> <laughs> she's not been dead. She is clearly a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. And That's where she's been. Watching Clive, are you a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race? I realised just the other day that I've never seen it. So I don't know whether I would be or not. I think that would be, that's a live action thing for the YouTube channel. I think Clive watching his first ever episode of RuPaul's Drag Race. And we can watch the expression on his face. Uh, Clive has got a natty little cycling hat on, which does not surprise me. It looks like it doesn't fit you. You look like Billy Bunter. It's a charity one for the London Courier Emergency Fund. Oh, very nice. How are you? I'm jolly well indeed, thank you. How was very excited by the fact that March is coming up soon, which means it's going to get warm and we'll be sitting outside in the garden enjoying ourselves. Yeah, have we all not just had enough of January and February now? Mm. Hmm. We have judges today who is downgraded from a weekend in Oslo to a weekend in York to a weekend scratching his nuts on the sofa. Is that about right? Pretty much so. I mean, you know, eight months ago, I hoped to be seeing the Osseberg ship tomorrow. And then that, they announced, you know, after I booked that, that they were closing that museum down for five years. So I thought, well, we'll still go. And then because of COVID, it was looking a bit tricky. So I thought we'll go to York and I'll at least get the chance to see the uh, Lloyd Bank Copper Lights, which I think we've talked about this as a group, haven't we, before? Yeah. It is, it's the largest fossilised um, human shit in, his, in, in, in the world, apparently. 20 centimetres long consistency of uh, made up of bread and bread and meat but i'm not even going to get to see that now so 
Oh, look at Kit furiously typing. There's no subject on which he wants to say something more. Because <laughs> his mum's listening. Uh, as long as that's all he's doing furiously. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't quite see Kit's hat. Because first of all, it looked like a, a witch finder general type hat. And now it looks like an old lady's church hat. It is an old lady's church hat from the 1930s by the looks of it. But where he's got his headphones on as well, he just looks like an Orthodox Jewish chap. <laughs> I, I don't know, there's an air, air of Quaker as well about this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, James. Jason has not been here in ages. And he's got a hat game because there was no memo um, and we lied. But he's been off and skinned a tiger and put it on his head in the space of time it's taken him to get his audio working. Hello, James. How are you? Tired. We'll be glad for half term. Not going to lie. The ranks of the employed. Um, Put it this way, I was meant to have two frees, three free periods today to just get work done. Spent all three of them sorting behaviour issues. Not even students I teach. Your your behavioural issues? Yeah. (laughs) Disciplinary, was it? (laughs) Oh, no. Put Put it this way, I've already cracked open the alcohol. I'm thank God I'm not teaching tomorrow. It's kind of, I don't want to. I don't want to like make lazy stereotypes about teachers, but James has basically done two thirds of a year's work so far, and he's knackered. Some of us have worked for nearly thirty or forty <laughs> years, and I'm not at the benefit of ten weeks fucking holiday a year either. Yeah. Oh, I wish it was fully ten weeks holiday. It's not actually ten weeks holiday. Oh yeah, because you're doing so marking. We've heard it all, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> like nine and a half. Oh, we're planning for stuff. Yeah. Not possible. I, I, I thought oh. I want us to lose teachers as listeners to this. So you know. Yeah. I'm just glad to be back with you lot, all of you. Yeah, it says a lot, doesn't it, when you're craving our company? God, it must. <laughs> be that's cool. Right. Find behavioural issues here, though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and no one's oh. any of them because I'm supposed to be the one in charge and I don't care. Uh, right, let's go to Lockie. What have you got on your head? I've got a Blackheath coloured bobble hat on my head. Oh, that's lovely. It's really hot. I'm going to have to take it off in a minute. It's very, very warm. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit. Oh, my Lockie head. looks like Jamiroquai. <laughs> I could rock that. I've, I've probably got the same quality moves as well, actually. A cleaner version of Jamiroquai, mate. It was just, I just struck me as he looked like he didn't take a bath ever. Uh, Lockstar, what you been up to? Uh, uni work, but not PhD stuff. I'm doing uh, some lecturing next month. So I'm prepping a course um, on the Cold War. So I've been mugging up furiously on uh, the war in the Far East, Cold War in the Far East. So the Korean War and stuff, about which I knew nothing and I knew even less about the Chinese civil war, which led up to it. So it's it's hilarious. It's so funny when you go into something that you know nothing about, and you have to learn places, and you have to learn names, and it's all different. And ah, but it's really interesting as well. So yeah, I'm good. I think Lockie, you need to you need to take it slightly easy because this teaching is exhausting. So just bear that in mind when you, you yeah, know, don't do you rush know into I'm, it. I'm, I'm I'm a freelancer, so you with your steady employment and you with your weeks of holiday, you can all fuck off, quite frankly. Yeah, exactly. We've <laughs> um, also got with us Kate. I think we've got Kate at the moment. I could just see a big picture of the Rock of Gibraltar. Hello. Yeah. Hi. I'm here. Although I fear I may have missed something crucial. Um, what's with the hats? Can you just uh, it was a spur moment thing. More important, because you've just arrived, is the fact that you have to try and get Kit to say as many rude words as possible because his mum can hear him 
but not us because she's sitting about six feet away from him. So if you can get him to say any rude words, it would be... Literally, like, I, I reckon my pitch today will just cause constant swearing from various different people due to my terrible pronunciations and probably inaccurate historical facts. It just sounds like a standard episode of History Hack, to be fair. <laughs> so, well, I think I'll cause plenty of swearing anyway. I hope so. Excellent. Where should we go? Right, I know what order I'm doing the last three in because I'm shit-stirring to the max. Um, so that leaves six others to choose from, Holmes. Clive's got a mouthful. Uh, uh let's should we do heather first before she falls asleep or does heather need more prep time well considering i got halfway through part of it and decided that it was a good time to go to bed which didn't technically work so i should have just came back out and typed the rest of it and then forgot about it sure we'll go with me just blag it it's fine make it up that's what we usually do on the podcast oh dear god if i make it up then oof, so Constantinople has been around in some shape or form sometime form from sometime during the 13th and 11th century BC. First off, it was Lagos, a potential Thracian settlement to Byzantium founded by the Greeks. The city has gone through many name changes, one of which is uh, has brought forth a song called uh, Constantinople, or is it Istanbul? No, it's Constantinople. Um, uh, I think you'll find it's nobody's business but the Turks, what they call it. <laughs> I don't care what they call it. They can call it anything they want, frankly. Byzantium, then. Peter Hart Battlefield Tour to Gallipoli. You get that blasted on the coach at 8.30 every morning. <laughs> I would cry. Some of the other name changes um, from going by Augusta Antonia. Thank you, Septimus Severus, the emperor of, of uh, Rome, for... Destroying the city during the Civil War and rebuilding it in honor of his son, Marcus Aurelius Antonius, Antoninus, excuse me, or Caracalla. Then it went back to Byzantium, then Constantinople, and also Istanbul, depending on who, we're t- who, who is actually talking about it. The city has had numerous nicknames. There was the Second Rome, Eastern Rome, and some names that, honestly, I don't even want to attempt to pronounce because I will offend someone. So here's the translations. Great City of the Romans, Throne of the Romans, City of the Caesars, just to name a few. Um, Constantinople was founded, even though it was technically already built by um, Roman, the Roman Emperor Constantine I in 324. And it was called Byzantium before the name change. Before moving the capital of the Roman Empire... Um, Constantine I was trying to make a readily defended capital capital that was more centrally located to both frontiers of the empire. It took six years of building, but Constantinople was consecrated on May 11th, 330. Slowly, the importance of Constantinople increased, and as it did, more buildings and important sites were built. The Palace of Hebdomon, where all the emperors up to Zeno were crowned, was built, by Emperor Valens. Um, the Church of John the Baptist was built by Theodosius I to s- preserve the skull of John the Baptist. Uh, a new forum was built by Arcadius and named after himself, as well as a lot of others. Theodosius II built the 18 meter tall triple wall fortifications, which is Theodosian walls, that wouldn't be breached until gunpowder appeared in battle. And he also did a university. 
In 378, the barbarian invasion of the Western Roman Empire meant Constantinople became the indisputed capital of the Roman Empire. Emperor Justinian I set off from Constantinople to retake the Diocese of Africa. And once that was done, the temple treasure of Jerusalem, which was rooted by the, looted by the Romans in AD 70, was retaken from Carthage and brought to Constantinople before it was returned to Jerusalem. In 474, a major fire ripped through Constantinople and it was called, big surprise, the Great Fire of Constantinople. An ongoing dispute between the Orthodox and Monophysitic Christians, excuse me, caused much disorder, culminating in the form of a major rebellion in 532 known as the Nika Riots. Fires from the rioters consumed the original Hagia Sophia, and a new one was built by Justinian I, as well as the tearing down and rebuilding of the original Church of the Holy Apostles and the Hagia Irene. The new cathedrals were decorated with elaborate and beautiful mosaics and, and decorations, and Justinian's Church of the Holy Apostles was eventually torn down to make room for the tomb of Mehmet II. In 541 and 2, the plague of Justinian killed up to perhaps 40% of the city's inhabitants. From 565 to 717, Constantinople was under siege a lot. In 626, Constantinople withstood sieges by the Avars and the Sassanids um, using Greek fire and the Theodosian walls, as well as help from the Bulgarians during the second siege to ensure victory. The walls frequently underwent construction to fix damage caused by the sieges. The city saw many emperor changes, scandals, and power grabs reminiscent of the days of the Caesars in Rome. It also saw the iconoclast, which although a religious issue caused some serious political upheaval. The iconoclast was when people against the use and veneration of holy images or icons were against, were against that. The iconophiles were for the use and veneration. The first iconoclasm took place in 726 and lasted until 787. A ban on religious images was enacted and there was widespread and wholesale destruction of religious images and prosecutions of people who were found to be against the iconoclasm. Of course, one wasn't enough, so they decided to have a second one, which took place between 814 and 842. During both of these iconoclasms, the Pope was for the use of icons, but um, as we can see, they, people of Constantinople really didn't care. They were going to do what they wanted. During, during the years of 1025 to 1081, um, the imperial army uh, was defeated by the, the Seljuk Turks, causing the acceptance of a peace treaty between um, Emperor Romanus Diogenes and Alp Arzian, Arslan. This peace back, treaty backfired for the Turks as the ruler they put in place instead of Romanus, a man called Michael VII Dukakis, or Ducas, excuse me, called for the torture and killing of Romanus and then refused to abide by the peace treaty. So the Turks retaliated by easily defeating the old defensive systems in Anatolia to come within striking distance of Constantinople. And if that wasn't bad enough, in, in 1090 to 1091, a nomadic Turkish tribe, also whose name I can't pronounce, uh, reached the walls of Constantinople, but where it was defeated, defeated by Emperor Alexius I with the aid of the Kipchaks. In response to the aid from Alexius, the First Crusade was assembled at Constantinople in 1096, but set out for Jerusalem without the aid of Alexius due to refusal to put itself in the command of Alexius. Towards the end of Manuel, Manuel, the first Kamenos, um, the number of foreigners in the city reached about 60 to 80, 
thousand people out of a total population of 400,000 people. In 1182, most of the Roman Catholic Western European inhabitants, so like the Latin, so-called Latin people, inhabitants of Constantinople were massacred, forced to flee, or sold into slavery by the Eastern Orthodox population. The cause of the massacre was the predominance of Italian merchants, which caused economic and social upheaval in Byzantium. It accelerated the decline of the independent native native merchants in favor of big exporters who became tied to the landed aristocracy, who in turn increasingly amassed large estates. Together with the perceived arrogance of the of the Italians, it fueled popular resentment among the middle and lower classes, both in the countryside and the cities. The religious differences between the two sides who viewed each other as schismatics, which included ecclesiastical differences and theological disputes, further exacerbated the problem. In July 1197, Constantinople was struck by severe fire, but the destruction from this Failed in comparison to that brought by the Crusades. In the course of a plot between Philip of Swabia, Boniface of Monferrat, and the Doge of Venice, the Fourth Crusade was, despite papal excommunication, diverted in 1203 against Constantinople, because of promoting the claims of Alexius IV Angelos, brother-in-law of Philip, son of the deposed Emperor Isaac II Angelos. The reigning emperor Angelos III, or Alexius III Angelos, had made no preparations. So when the crusaders occupied Galatia, it broke the defensive chain protecting the Golden Horn and entered the harbor where on the 27th of July, they breached the seawalls. Alexius III fled and Alexius IV didn't have the treasury to pay his allies. So long story short, The first attempt by the crusaders to take the city was repelled, but the second succeeded and the invaders poured in, sacking and looting the city for three days. Although Constantinople was retaken by Michael Michael VIII, the empire had lost many of its key economic resources and struggled to survive. When Michael VIII captured the city, his population was 35,000, but by the end of his reign, he succeeded in increasing the population to about 70,000 people. Military defeats, civil wars, earthquakes, and natural disasters also were, were joined also by the Black Death, which in 1347 spread to Constantinople, exacerbating the people's sense that they were indeed doomed by God. Then, in 1453, after a seven-week siege, the Ottoman Turks captured the city. The Ottomans were commanded by 21-year-old Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II. The Christian Orthodox city of Constantinople was now under... Ottoman control. And when um, Mehmet II entered Constantinople, he immediately rode his horse to the Hagia Sophia. After the doors were axed down and thousands of citizens who were hiding in the sanctuary were enslaved and raped. Often the slavers fought each other to the death over particularly beautiful and valuable slave girls. And most, and also moreover, symbols of Christianity were destroyed or vandalized. Mehmed's main concern for Constantinople, though, had more to do with solidifying control over the city and rebuilding its defenses. After 45,000 captives were marched from the city, building projects were commenced immediately after the conquest, which included repair of the walls, construction of the citadel, and building a new palace. Mehmed issued orders across his empire that Muslims, Christians, and Jews should be resettled in the city, 
with Christians and Jews required to pay a tax and Muslims also requiring to pay a tax. He demanded that 5,000 households were needed to be transferred to Constantinople by, by that September. From all over the empire, prisoners of war and deported people were sent to the city, but a lot of the people escaped again because they were basically allowed to do what they wanted, so they just left. And then there were several more outbreaks of plagues so that in 1459, Mehmet allowed the deported Greeks to come back into the city. And that's about as far as I got. And then some other shit happened, right? Right. Lots of other shit. Of which I'm sure Holmes is an expert, right? Yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, I think that's about the most I've ever written on yours when you've been speaking, Heather. So you did quite quite an in-depth job there. Um, I guess, and this is the tricky thing, and I guess we're going to hear possibly about other comparable cities um, tonight. But what makes this more, more historic than those? It's subjective. So stuff. <laughs> every place seemed to have it, its plagues and its massacres, and it's subjective. I mean, this does have three different sort of separate and distinct phases as well, based on what you were saying. Although we did have crusade stuff, so... That's true, that's true. And also, I mean, oh, yeah. I think you started off by saying, I mean, you gave us a rundown from about 330, was it 330 AD onwards? 330 after current events, if we're being modern about it. Yes. Which, you know, that's about, that's 11... He gave us a summary of 1,100 years' history, which some of the other places may not be able to match that. You've got thoughts on Constantinople? I remember you giving us a rather excellent blow-by-blow on the, the princess that you're obsessed with. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with uh, um, Anna Komnena. Um, so the one thing I would say about Constantinople is that it is a meeting point. It is the point where Europe meets Asia. And so you actually get a mix of Asian culture and a lot of cultural influences from there. And of course, you get the European influences and the Greeks um, and uh, essentially the extension of the Roman Empire. And a lot of the places we're going to talk about tonight have predominantly an impact on a local scale, a European scale. Generally, this is something that actually spreads across continents. Nothing more for me. OK, so. We have Constantinople chucked in the ring for the most historic place in history. Where shall we go next? Let's go. Oh, power. Holmes, you pick. Okay, as long as I don't mess up your last three order, we'll go for uh, Chris next. <laughs> You're on. Oh you're gonna love this hang on let me turn my camera off right okay so um i decided not to wander far from my uh from my own uh lane for this week's pitch so although i'm vehemently against anyone uniting the medway towns as one place and medway city for the purpose of wanting to win this or (laughs) uh medway i'm counting uh gillingham strood rochester chatham raynham and all the pointless little villages in between as medway uh, I should also point out that I don't work for Midway Council uh, or in the tourist board, so I am available if anyone wants to give me a job. <clears throat> so, why is Midway the most uh, historical place ever? Well, I'm not deluded enough to believe uh, that it really is compared to some of the other places that can be coming up tonight, but um, Midway takes a lot of knocking, especially from me, and 
there is actually a surprising amount of history in here. And like uh, a history drug dealer, I'm going to look at you all and go, what do you fancy? I got something for all of you. So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, we have uh, prehistoric um, relics, uh, not just the council. And um, that includes several long barrows down in the valley and along the river, uh, including Kitscotty House, small and large, um, and the Saracen Stones and um, other, other evidence. If anyone uh, saw my Twitter feed last week, there was a whole thing about uh, Saxon graves being found with Neolithic um, arrowheads uh, just up on Raynham Road. Uh, Julius Caesar himself uh, fought a uh, pitch battle here, one of his first major ones in England, uh, on the banks of the Medway at Sharkey's Castle, um, not far from Rochester, which you can see from the bridge. Uh, this took several days, but once they managed to get across, uh, they fought the uh, tribesmen, the local tribesmen who had painted themselves blue, and they lost. This is a tradition that is carried out in Gillingham every fortnight, where the locals dress up in blue and go and watch foreigners from other towns come and beat our football team. Uh, the Romans built the first bridge nearby at Rochester uh, for part of the uh, Watling Street Roman Road, which became one of the most important parts of uh, transport around the country. Uh, they also walled up the city, built a cemetery, and um, which the Jutes and the Saxons then moved into, as did the Vikings, who used the nearby Gillingham Water as a sink port. And um, we, their, their names have impacted upon us and still here today, including words like Brompton or Twiddle, where I'm living. Uh, the Normans came along and, and um, took over Medway and decided, actually, this is actually a really nice place. It's really important. So they built new, new city walls, a cathedral and a castle. Oh, hang on. Lost my place in my notes. <laughs> We've also got... Um, the uh, damn it. Just to myself, my... the most depressing book collection in the world, which is behind Alina. I bet, like, <laughs> not a single happy book on that shelf is there. There is not. Can you not see my Hitler books? <laughs> I mean, he dies at the end, that could arguably be happy, right. Well, this is Hitler, this is Auschwitz, that's concentration camps, that's Warsaw and Poland during the Second World War. So take if, a pick. If anyone I've, other I've, than Alina described their book collection like that, we'd look like nutters. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had, I've had <laughs> to leave my Hitler still probably all up to the um, oh, uh, guest bedroom. Um, I haven't had any guests <laughs> yet, but I don't know quite what the... Well, they moved upstairs with your Prince Andrew and your Savile books. <laughs> uh, anyway, it still probably looks better than the ugly building in Warsaw. Oh, don't get her started on the ugly building. That's what she's arguing for. It's a historic place. Oh, oh I can't wait to hear this. Kind of. Chris, have your place, my friend. It's going to be Warsaw, but I, I'm going to touch on that. I promise not to rant. Oh, no, please do. Please do. It's down the pub. We love a good rant. Come on. Little bit. Let, let Chris finish his little spiel. I don't want to interrupt. I've got to have found his place and lost it again by now. Carry on. Exactly. Well, come back and do a proper intro with Belina. Go on, Chris. Okay. Um, right. So um, I'll go back to the beginning of the paragraph. Uh, the Normans came, conquered, uh, recorded Medway, built two castles at Rochester, uh, one of which remains today. Um, 
then um, is which is also one of the best preserved in uh, the UK and northern France. If anyone cares? Uh, William the Conqueror's brother, Bishop Odo, uh, was gifted the castle and uh, maintained a palace near G near Gillingham, uh, near where my ex-wife lives. And uh, it was um, due to o Odo that we were invo involved in one of the first rebellions in 1088. Uh, Q Bishop Gundolf of Rochester, who wasn't a wizard, but he did build um, uh, build a new uh, build the new castle, and is considered to be the, uh, and the Tower of London, part of the Tower of London, and is considered to be the uh, father of military engineering in the British Army. Um, now to try and tick someone else, tick someone off my list. Uh, during this time uh, period, the Textus Rufinius was laid down between 1122 and 1124, which contains a copy of the um, oldest surviving royal law codes from the ki uh, kings of Kent, uh, Athelbert uh, of Kent. And um, these are the only, this is the only copy of his laws. So I'm ticking off obscure legal code for, for Clive. That's the first person. Uh, I couldn't really go on about Medway without talking about Chatham Dockyard as much as I tried not to, but um, Sam kind of dropped me in it because we meant to be doing this together and then she disappeared uh, on me. So I'm doing this. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, as Chatham Dockyard grew uh, through the early period, um, surpassing Deptford and Sheer Sheerness, uh, it had a massive impact on British history um, in at least two ways. Uh, the first being the construction of HMS Victory, which is, um, despite what Marcus thinks, is the greatest warship ever built for the Royal Navy after the dreadnought. But um, instead, I'm going to hedge my bets and talk about the Anglo-Dutch raid of 1667 to St. Charlie. Uh, this is where the nefarious Dutch uh, fleet subdued Sheppey, then sailed into the Medway, burning and stealing, stealing Royal Navy ships, uh, including the Royal Charles, which had brought uh, Charles II over uh, from Holland for his three-day Shagathorn, Shagathorn in London, which, we, as we know, was one of the greatest parties in history, which is what Charlie's talked about before. So that's uh, Charlie off the list as well. Moving on to the Napoleonicists, who I must tell off for being shoddy because not one of them's turned up, and I have a whole section on Napoleonic history for them. No, Wellington never stayed here. However, we do have, uh, um, without the Royal Engineers, who were stationed in Brompton, which was their barracks and their training, training ground, then the sieges of Badahoff probably wouldn't have come off quite as well without their engineers. Uh, Medway Raid also saw massive fortifications being built, um, which are still here, including Fort Amherst, which first, was first surveyed by the Duke of Marlborough, Sir John Churchill. So we've got, hope you sort of tick Alex off a little bit there. Uh, Fort Pitt, Fort um, I'm sure Fort Clarence, and uh, the Redoubt, um, um, Redoubts out on Twiddle which became the uh, forerunners for um, trenches uh, and uh, were built worldwide. Um, the Twiddle Redoubts, I think there's some in Canada still, but yeah, they used to be just around, around, just around the right corner from me. We also have miles and miles of secret tunnels under the hills of the fortifications, including Nor Command, where the Royal Navy was stationed, uh, where in 1942, my, great -gra my grandmother took a telephone call from Plymouth from a very urgent admiral saying, get the admiral on the phone, fuck. Germans are in the channel she said may I remind you you're talking to a lady he said I don't give a shit the Germans are in the channel um, we move on to governmental waste and expenditure which I'm sure lots of people are into we have the Palmerston forts being constructed around 
uh, most of Medway, pretty much most of them are still standing, including Her Majesty's Prison of Borstal. Yes, Medway gave the English language the term, your lad will end up in Borstal if he's not careful. Prisoners bring me back to Napoleon uh, with French POWs housed in the hulks off St. Mary's Island and the monument erected to those who died in captivity. Uh, which is down um, by the St. George's Centre, by the dockyard, where 300 Frenchmen were reinterred, um, which does lead me on to Dickens, Dickens a little bit. Um, Medway Towns are very proud of their link to Dickens, even if it is tenuous, but prison hulks, Dickens, we had quite a bit there. Um, I'd, like, I'd be remiss in not mentioning that aviation in the British Army came from Medway as well, uh, with the Royal Engineers uh, doing their training nearby, uh, including uh, young Jamie McCudden, who uh, then went on to become one of England's greatest fighter pilots in the First World War. Moving on into the First World War, and I know there are a few fans here, uh, we have the, I've already mentioned the Twitter Redoubts. Um, we had uh, the pre-Dreadnought battleship uh, Majestic was built here. Uh, she was sunk. But if anyone has read my article in Salient Points this quarter, uh, you would have noticed that uh, she was sunk by uh, Otto Hersing in the U-21 off the Dardanelles. Um, we also have the sad uh, moniker of being having the highest uh, military casualty air raid in during the First World War, possibly any air raid in the First World War, of around 80 servicemen when uh, the Germans dropped a bomb from a gotter um, bomber through the glass drill hall roof, causing the glass to shatter and fall on the sleeping sailors, ripping them to shreds. For those of you into graveyards, we've got several large ones here, including Woodlands opposite me, uh, which has the casualties from Sheerness-based HMS Bulwark when she blew up and HMS Irene from when she blew up and the Dover-based HMS Glatton from when she blew up. Uh, there's also the VC winning swordfish pilot, uh, Eugene Esmond, who uh, died in, during the same channel dash that my grandmother got the phone call for. We also have two R Royal RNAS senior officers, uh, Neville um Usborne and uh, de Corsi Island, who were killed in a plane crash attempting to uh, uh, launch an airplane from a flying envelope balloon sort of thing, and they fell out of the sky. So what's it in it for German history nerds like me? Well, other than um, the uh, only intact wreck of German U-boat out on the marshes, uh, the river mud, um, sat out in the river mud, uh, we have a World War II U-boat, uh, German U-boat that was captured and uh, was serviced here, which was HMS Graf. Um, we also have the uh, short Sterling, uh, for the aviation nerds, we have the short Sterling factory um, tunnels, which are now concreted up. But this is where the short Sterling bomber, for, for Britain's first war engine bomber, was uh, built and um, modified and would have gone into massive production had the Luftwaffe not bombed the factory twice in 1940. Um, then we have uh, several um, disasters that have happened here, including the horrific, um, horrific fire disasters, including uh, the bus crash, which killed 24 naval cadets aged between 9 and 13, um, which saw national changes to street, lamp, uh, street lighting, uh, the Gillingham Park, Park fire, which killed 15, the Brompton tram crash. Uh, we also have a link to history's worst explorer, as um, Alex Bat picture in down the pub about uh, Franklin with a good chunk of his men coming from um, seven of his uh, crewmen coming from Chatham and Gillingham. So before I nervously sum up, I suddenly thought if it's going to be history, it's got to tick one of the boxes, Nazi, Titanic, sex, Tudors. So here we go. Here's the links. 
William Thomas Beaven, a third-class passenger who died on the Titanic, lived in Gillingham. William Joyce, who uh, was a member of the British Union of Fascists and a Nazi, um, was a Nazi radio personality, lived in, in Chatham for quite some time. In 1864, the Contagious Diseases Act was brought in by the government who were concerned by the number of servicemen who were uh, suffering from venereal diseases. And this included places like Chatham, where lots of sailors and soldiers worked. About one third of the armed forces were down with a clap. So they arrested famous prostitutes. And one madam um, was arrested, put in Chatham Police Station, and was promptly um, freed by an angry mob in the middle of a sex riot. Which then leads me to the Tuners, Tuners, Tuna, (laughs) Tudors, sorry, um, with Wyatt's Rebellion, who he, he led a rebellion against Bloody Mary, fired a cannon from Rochester Bridge, short story long, well, long story short, had his head cut off for rebellion. So you can see that Medway does tick all the boxes, and that's not even mentioning the, uh, the Huguenot um, uh, and the hospital, uh, the workhouse starvation scandal, the military police murdering a prisoner scandal, and um, the 1215 siege that saw Rochester Castle having a round towel and all the others a square, one of my favourite Medway fun facts as well as um, hangings, murders, railways, uh, the statue of Kitchener, Sir David Frost, Thomas Waghorn, Gary Rhodes, my nan, the Rochester Keep, and I've already done that one, and, the, um, and of course Chatham's uh, famous acting son of Kevin Eldon. Charlie will know who I mean, just from this quote from Black, that one episode of Black Books he did with the word dirty. Um, <laughs> But as a closing thought, there is one person that I haven't, I don't think I've covered or I could tick off my, off my illicit list. And try as, my, try as I might, I couldn't really find a way to get Poland involved in, in Medway or the Holocaust. So the only thing I can think of in Medway history that could interest Alina, 25th of November, 1980, I was born. <laughs> oh, well done, Chris. That was so cool. I love it. I, I just all that effort, though, and I suspect what's won over everybody listening was the phrase sex riot. <laughs> and shagathon. And shagathon. Well, also, I, that's my first question. But I love, what is a sex riot? What happens in a sex riot? Go homes. Well, well, basically in Chatham, they, they were just so incensed that this well-loved madam who ran a really successful brothel had been arrested. That they just decided that the people just united and attacked the police station, and the policemen, fearing for their for their own safety, just let her out because uh, it was a it's a riot motivated by sex. If we form our own band, it's got to be called Sex Riot. The history hat band. <laughs> We're gonna rock. James, Can I play the tambourine because I can't sing. Mate, you you're not allowed. You're the roadie. I've I've heard your musical ability. <laughs> you mean none no musical yeah. ability yeah you you can fetch and carry and sort the skittles into the various colors because i don't want no purple ones in my bowl uh, in the dressing room Holmes, uh, that was a damn good effort actually it, it was it was a good effort but I, I i don't think we want to go down the road of coming up with an area and list just reeling off a list of absolutely everything that historically that happened there personally i mean I heard it, but I mean, I think if we go back to what Kit said, you know, when he was helpfully uh, joining in um, Heather's pitch, when he finished off by saying, you know, Constantinople was really important because 
its impact spread across continents. Yet yeah. <laughs> I'm not getting the same vibes from Medway. And actually, to be fair, a lot of this stuff is quite interesting. DVDs that have spread throughout continents from it's, Medway. That that is true, and a lot of the stuff is quite interesting. But if you go for like you know. Um, Neolithic remains, Bronze Age remains, Roman remains, um, warfare defences. They're everywhere in this country. That's one of the only decent things for living. You know, I grew up in the Midlands. They've got all that and more. I mean, they don't have they don't have the naval stuff, admittedly, in the, in the, in the Midlands. But, you know, I don't really give a shit about that either. So that's not really coming into my thinking. Correction. Historically, there was some naval stuff. We did build, like, the anchors and there was also the transport into the ports. Yeah, but so it's not on the sea, and also Lord Anson came from the, the Midlands, da, 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 da. you know, let's not turn this into a, a dull fest where we have to pick apart every minor bit of history. Yeah, <laughs> so what you're saying, Holmes, is you want to hear more than a list, even if it is a I, very... I think I want to hear more than... I want the case to be made of why it is the most historical place, and just everywhere's got loads of history, whether it's written down or not, really. I mean, that's a bit... Kind of, but everything's existed for ages, so the case needs to be made why it's better than, better, why it's better than all the other pictures, surely. Lord the judge, it's up to you. I mean, it is. It's kind of difficult because if some of the ones come up, I've been to some of the places, which makes it a bit subjective. But I mean, in fairness to Chris, I have spent a night in Borstal because I've got a mate that lives there. I don't think that helps your pitch particularly much, but I think I'll throw it out in the interest of transparency. Uh, we've heard from her slightly. Alina, welcome. Evening, everyone. Evening your depressing bookshelf it's looking good though it was depressing boxes that you couldn't see any of the books in a little while ago oh my god like I so basically when I moved in here my parents helped me move so they took my bed which is you know you don't make old people sleep on the floor so I slept on the floor in this room surrounded by these boxes and it was probably the most traumatic one of the most traumatic experiences thinking holy shit one of these boxes is going to drop on my head in the night and I'm going to die by books more traumatic for the dog who is now like going all crusty. So sad about moving. Is he all right? Yeah, we went. This is the reason why we're running a little bit late. We went to the vet because he's all crusty and kind of disgusting. The little tiny Westie, by the way, if anybody wants to know which one it is, um, he's a poor little thing. But he's got a sofa. We have people. I have a sofa. Like I cannot explain to you functioning a month without a sofa and two dogs that want to sit with you. It's not funny. Okay. Well, we're very pleased. Uh, I'm also very excited because you're going to be here very soon because you're coming to Jordan. So whoop, whoop. Uh, so Alina's going to be in the country and available for boozing and stuff. And Kit's back and Kate's coming over. And oh my God, we all just need to go and get totally shit-faced together. Uh, right, okay, Holmes, where do you want to go next? I think he started so we can finish. We might as well go back to James, might we? Yep, go on then. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. So what I'm going to talk about today is a place I've actually visited. Now, this is a place in the centre of the Aegean Sea, a deserted city that still holds the signs and the aura of an ancient time. Unlike the usual sadness that often comes with the remains of old civilizations, this city makes you look around again and again, admiring every rock, every flower and every little path. Even after all these years, the island of Delos remains awash with light and sun. Now, in ancient Greek, Delos means something that can be seen. It got its name because it was seen coming out of the waves. It is heavily tied with Greek mythology. According to the myth, Leto, one of Zeus's lovers, was about to give birth to Apollo and Diana, but Hera, Zeus's wife and queen of the gods, hunted her down. So Poseidon helped his brother out by creating 
the island where the sea touched the waves with his trident, and there it was, a small island full of rocks that came out of nowhere in the middle of the Cyclades. And it was on this island where Leto finally found shelter and brought to light the two new gods of Olympus, Artemis and Apollo. Now, this is one of the most important mythological, historical and archaeological sites in Greece. And it's one of the most unique and probably less heard about places um, to people, to the general public. But I've been there and it's amazing. So it had a holy sanctuary for a millennium before Olympian Greek mythology made it the birthplace of Apollo and Artemis. From its sacred harbour, the horizon shows the three conical mounds that have identified landscapes sacred to a goddess. It's predicted the deity's name is Athena, but in other sites, one retaining its pre-Greek name, Mount Synthrius, or Mount, I can never pronounce it, Kandos, is crowned with the sanctuary of Zeus. It is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it conveys the image of a great, extensive and rich archaeological site, which conveys the image of a great cosmopolitan Mediterranean port. Now, we start with ancient Greece. We have started with the myth of Apollo and Artemis' birthplace. However, it was a major cult centre where Dionysus and Titanus Leto, mother of those twins, was revered, eventually acquiring Panhellenic religious significance. It was originally a religious pilgrimage for the Ionians. However, after purification by the city-state of Athens, all the graves within sites of the temple were dug up and all the bodies moved to another nearby island. Furthermore, during the Peloponnesian Wars, this site became a place where people could not be born on and people could not die on. And this carried throughout the time in ancient Greece. It also had heavy political links. After the Persian Wars, it became the natural meeting ground for the Delian League and also, at the time, held their treasury until it was moved to Athens. This is a site that has no productive capacity for food, fibre or timber. Its limited water was exploited by some extensive aqueduct and cistern systems, which are impeccably remain to this day. And also, various regions operated agoras. Now, after the Greeks and the Romans took control, in fighting with Rhodes and also not wanting to rely on Rhodes in the east, they made the Delos a free port where thousands of people could live and also trade could bloom. And it was still this big political and religious centre in the middle of the Cyclades. Now, from this, unfortunately, we start to see the eventual fall of Delos. During the wars with Pontus, it was eventually... Um, destroyed, I think it was the second Pont Pontic War. However, people still lived there, and afterwards it's been taken over by every dominant power within the region from the Byzantines, the Turks, so on and so forth. And it still holds some significance. To this day, no one has been born or dies on the island, and eventually it was opened up to extensive excavations during the 19th century. Now, it's still some of the best archaeological preserved places in the world. It's still, you can tour the whole island. It's also now, no people still live there. You have to visit from Mykonos and you can see the museum there and everything. But also it's home to a wild population of cats. So all the owners of cats in here, you will love this place because the wild cats roam everywhere and 
it's just beautiful to go to. This is a site that has historical significance, mythological significance, religious ties, and is just a beautiful place to go to. And I feel that it earns its place as one of the greatest historical places. And I feel that it was a contender I went for. Thanking you. Uh, Holmes, you're a cat person. I, do, I thought that was a bit of a bold claim, having been to Greece quite a few times. You know, in, anywhere in Greece, there's a wild population of cats roaming all over the place. I don't think it's unique <laughs> for this particular island. I, I mean, I mean, being blunt, I mean, how many, how many of us have heard of this island? Surely we need to. We're talking big things tonight, right? Yeah. If it's, I know James said it's one of the greatest historical sites, but we're looking for the most historical site. And the fact that probably none of us have heard of this. We'll go to Alina because she should know this. She's into all this Greek shit. Wait, what was the fucking question? <laughs> Have you heard about what James was talking about? Uh, the, the island? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I, I am a little bit into Greek shit, but I haven't been in a long time. Um, yes, I have. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean to, oh. to quote Alina, I don't mind a bit of Greek shit, Greek shit either. But I mean, I'm, I'm not aware. So, James, why is it why is it better than Constantinople? From or I mean, or even at Medway. Well, I'd say I'd argue anywhere is better than Medway. <laughs> but hey. um, oh. as for Constantinople, you live in Birmingham. That's take very that brave. <laughs> that's very brave from a Brummie. <laughs> oh, tiny penis of vindication is obviously. No, that's not. That's you not come vindication. down here and say that. Penis of. <laughs> uh, I say that the is a drawing and isn't actually Lockie's penis as well. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I'll find it hard. I think everyone will find it hard to fight with Constantinople tonight. Heather has actually smashed it out of the bag tonight. But Delos, um, well, like I said, it's heavily tied to mythology. It's heavily tied to politics, especially in the ancient world. It's heavily tied to religion. It has seen some of the greatest powers and generations take it over. And it sometimes gets I mean, lost. Most, in most, those of those, pl- most of those criteria you could say about the Acropolis, and people would have heard of that, and that would probably have been a bigger chance of winning. Raise your hand yeah. if you can point to this island on a map. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to really <laughs> teach a lot of people about ancient Greece <laughs> and why this island is important there. Alternately, go- who can point to Medway on a map? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone. Yeah. I gave it a shot. I, I set myself a challenge. I, gave I mean, it I, I like Greek stuff, and I'm glad you gave it, but I mean, if you're going to go Greek, there are better ones to go. I mean, maybe you should have focused more on the uh, Midlands naval contribution that you started to tell us about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And to be honest, I wanted to avoid places like Knossos, because that was rebuilt by uh, whatever, whoever thought Knossos looked like it. I mean, there is Akrotiri on Santorini, but that is also a tourist hellhole at times, and not I enough of you will have heard of the Greek Pompeii. I think quite a lot of people have heard of Athens. You know, Athens is quite <laughs> quite big, isn't yeah. it? You know, the birthplace of democracy yeah. might be in with a shit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe I could have gone Athens instead. But like I said, you I, know me, I don't do normal. I love Santorini because it was essentially looking at the inside of a volcano. If you basically. Yeah. The, it's a volcano that exploded and you're looking at the inside rim of it. That's pretty fucking historic. Joyce, I've, no, I've been there. I agree with you. And Akrotiri, the Greek Pompeii, is also, well, rumoured to be part of the lost city of Atlantis. So I always do like to say I've been to Atlantis as well, but 
That's just varying properly into History Channel territory here. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, there's no scientific proof, but it is what remains of the society that was on Santorini at the time. James, did, did aliens uh, bring the wild cat population to the island of Delos? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Thank God. I don't, I don't want to go to the aliens guy. <laughs> right. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Okay. I sense that Holmes is quite disappointed so far. I'll do one more and try and restore your faith, Holmes. I think I think you're buying into the idea that Constantinople might be very historical. Um, well, I thought, to be fair to Heather, I thought Constantinople was a very good call when she said it. It was one of the ones that I hadn't heard mentioned, and I thought that was yeah a really strong, a really good one to go with. Yeah, so I think I think other than that, I mean, obviously, I love Chris's pitch. I love it because it was epic and because he managed to get like sex rights and Titanic and Nazis in and everything. And it was it was very well done pitch. But I don't think even Chris thought he was going to win the most historic place of all time. So let's go for someone who let's I just want to pick you someone who preps like a mofo and is epic. Kate. I had a feeling that was <laughs> that was heading my way. I need someone who's going to restore Holmes's faith in this debate. I have prepped like a mofo. However, I mm, I don't know. I prepped like a mofo before Holmes made the point about um, historical, whatever it was that you said about like, like why it. why more than other places so anyway um it's done now so here goes um i'm not known for short pitches either am i and this is set to be longer than most so i really hope that you'll be interested (laughs) i've chosen somewhere that deserves the title most historical place i believe for its sheer concentration of history and for its uniqueness so i hope i can do it justice I've chosen a place which covers a fraction over two and a half square miles, is almost 1,400 feet high and has more miles of road inside than out. Gibraltar is said to have been created by Hercules during his 10th labour. Instead of climbing Mount Atlas, he smashed through it, forming the pillars of Hercules, one of which is Gibraltar, and connecting the Atlantic Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea. In truth, the rock was formed about six million years ago by the collision of the Eurasian and African tectonic plates. This caused the strait to close. The med evaporated and about a million years later, another earthquake or maybe a Roman God caused the strait to reopen quite dramatically. And for several decades, Gibraltar was at the edge of the largest waterfall the world has ever known as the Atlantic refilled the med 100 million cubic meters of water a second. However, it was formed, it became an important military base, especially during the Napoleonic Wars and the Second World War. Gibraltar controlled the narrow entrance to the Mediterranean Sea. Less than nine miles wide, this choke point remains strategically important, with half the world's seaborne trade passing through it. Evidence of hominid inhabitation of the rock dates back around 55,000 years to a time when the Sahara Desert was wet and fertile. Woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers roamed the earth, and the caves in the rock were inhabited by Neanderthals, who would probably have thought they'd found heaven had such a notion existed. A towering natural temple with the most stunning halls adorned with glittering, glistening stalactites, surrounded by a five-kilometre-wide fertile coastal plain, supporting an abundance of animals and plants, hardly the little rock we know and love now, with sea on one side and ocean on the other. Gibraltar has the highest density of Neanderthal archaeological sites in the world, the most compelling evidence to date from Neanderthal artwork, and findings show they survived here well after they died out elsewhere in Europe. A skull found in Forbes Quarry in 1848 wasn't recognised as Neanderthal. They were 
discovered eight years later in Neander Valley. Had it been recognised, we might have had Calpetian or Gibraltarian man rather than Neanderthal man. Neanderthals inhabited some of over 150 caves, many of which are now below sea level. They also include a UNESCO World Heritage Site and hold evidence that they continued to be inhabited until about 5,000 years ago. Gibraltar's recorded kind of tangible history began about a millennia BC. Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Greeks and Romans considered Gibraltar sacred. There were shrines to the god Melkart, later Heracles, then Hercules. Excavations have found pottery, jewellery and Egyptian scarabs, probably left in the hope of securing safe passage through the dangerous waters of the strait. The ancient Greeks believed the caves to be bottomless and contained the gates of Hades, while the Romans called the rock Mons Calpe, meaning hollow mountain. Following the collapse of the Roman Empire, Mons Calpe became Jebel Tariq when the Muslim commander Tariq ibn Ziyad landed at what is now Europa Point. Over the years, Jebel Tariq became Gibraltar. During their rule, the Moors built a castle. The original design enclosed an area from the upper rock all the way to the sea. Much remains. The Tower of Homage, terraces, battlements and the massive gatehouse. The tower is the highest of the period in the Iberian Peninsula and the Caspar the largest. The castle is historically significant to all of Western Europe as it played a prominent part in the Muslim invasion, which led to Islamic domination of parts of Western Europe. The castle was used as a prison until 2010 and is now a popular tourist attraction. Over the following years, Gibraltar changed hands between several Moorish sultans until 1309 when the Castilians laid siege and Gibraltar came under Spanish rule. 24 years later, the Moors took it back until in the late 1400s, Gibraltar once again came under Spanish control. Gibraltar's heaving with historical anecdotes and stories. The Star Bar, Gibraltar's oldest pub, is hidden in an alleyway between Main Street and Irish Town and claims that Christopher Columbus stopped off and enjoyed the hospitality of the tavern on his way to the Americas. In 1540, Corsair pirates landed in 16 galleys, looting the town and capturing inhabitants as slaves. By this time, Spain had been united under Charles I, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who sent an Italian engineer to fortify the town's defences. It is still possible to walk the entire length of the wall he built, and at the only land entrance to the town, the ditch and drawbridge he built are still there. Landport opens into a square dating to the Moorish period, an intertidal area where there were beach galleys. After the siege of Gibraltar in 1309, Ferdinand of Castile ordered a galley house be built where his ships could be repaired. This house gradually sank into the sand. The archaeological remains excavated in the 90s can still be seen. Under British rule, the, bar the barracks and casemates built gave Casemate Square its name. Still there, they now house pubs and restaurants rather than soldiers and guns. In 1567, a large house in Upper Town was turned into a hospital. Gibraltar's first hospital, it remained on the same site and continued to be the main hospital until 2005, almost four and a half centuries later. The Battle of Gibraltar during the Eighty Years' War saw the Dutch destroy a Spanish fleet anchored in the Bay of Gibraltar. This battle led to the Twelve-Year Truce. The first suggestion for the occupation of Gibraltar as a naval base was made in 1625. Not long after, Cromwell wrote to General Montague describing the necessity of a permanent base at the entrance to the Med. Cromwell's preference, he said, was Gibraltar. So we're in about 1700 by now, and there haven't been any sieges for a couple of hundred years, but the Spanish War of Succession kicked off the first of the last. British Admiral Sir, Sir George Rook took control in the name of Anne, Queen of Britain. And despite a couple of attempts by Spain, Gibraltar has remained British ever since. 
a statue of Admiral Rook was erected in 2004 to celebrate 300 years of British Gibraltar. Following Rook's takeover, Gibraltar ended in chaos. Spanish residents killing Dutch and English soldiers and sailors, they raped and pillaged their way around the town. Eventually, order was restored. All except 70 residents left. A sorry procession filed out of Lamport, took shelter at a nearby chapel and formed a settlement. Declared the heir to Gibraltar, the objects and records from pre-1704 are still in Sam Rocket. Soon after, Queen Anne appointed the first British governor. Roger Elliott took up residence in the convent of the Franciscan Friars. Built in 1531, it is still the official residence of the governor, and members of the Royal Gibraltar Regiment still mount daily guard at the convent. Once a year, they perform the Ceremony of the Keys, a reenactment of the locking of the gates to the town and garrison, also performed every Saturday by the Reenactment Society. The last siege prompted the British to build tunnels, carving them out of the rock with sledgehammers and crowbars, to get guns up onto the north face. The tunnels were nearly 300 metres long and are still in use today. The embrasures can be seen when approaching Gibraltar. The tunnels have since been expanded and now the rock is like honeycomb, over 50 kilometres of tunnels inside and only 29 kilometres of road outside. The Mediterranean steps at the southern end of the rock, now popular for fitness and nature watching, were created in the 18th century as the quickest way for soldiers to move between defence points. The iron rings in the rock used to haul the guns up are still there. At the top of the steps, two huge guns are still mounted on O'Hara's battery. They were last fired in 1976. In 1803, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson arrived in Gibraltar as Commander-in-Chief Mediterranean. A couple of years later, the Battle of Trafalgar was fought just west of Gibraltar. Though it concluded with the death of the brilliant and charismatic Nelson, the overwhelming victory of the British Navy was so resounding that for the next century they were considered invincible. After his death, Nelson's body was placed in a cask filled with brandy. An HMS victory was towed into Rosia Bay. The ship was repaired and the brandy replaced before they set sail for England. There's a lovely statue of Nelson at South Bastion, just opposite Trafalgar Cemetery, which was formerly Southport Ditch Cemetery. Although now named for the Battle of Trafalgar, only two victims of the battle are actually buried there. Outside of the UK, the oldest police force in the Commonwealth is Gibraltar, formed by Robert Peel just nine months after he founded the Met. In 1908, the British ambassador in Madrid informed the Spanish Minister of State of the intention to build a fence along the line of British sentries to reduce sentry duty and prevent smuggling. Well, that didn't work. According to the British, the fence was erected one metre inside British territory. To this day, Spain doesn't recognise the fence as the valid border and claims it's built on Spanish soil. Strategically located, attached to neutral Spain, Gibraltar played an important role during the First World War. Facilities and expertise made it an essential medical station for the treatment and care of wounded personnel arriving from theatres of war like the Dardanelles and Gallipoli. It became one of the most important meeting points for convoys passing through the Mediterranean. Gibraltar took on ship repair, refitting and maintenance in the newly constructed dry docks. The commercial port bunkered over one and a half million tonnes of coal between 1914 and 18. No easy undertaking considering the labourers hoard the coal manually. A series of breech-loading guns along the ridge effectively closed the strait and gave Britain control of the ship's crossing. During the Second World War, the rock was turned into a fortress, peppered with anti-aircraft defences. Heavy guns protected from aerial attack, quick-firing guns covered sea and land approaches, all supported by a network of searchlights. Control of Gibraltar gave the Allied powers control of the Med. The rock was a key part of the Allied supply lines to Malta and North Africa, and the base of the naval force H. Just before the war, a runway was constructed on the Isthmus. The same runway is still in use, bisected by the only road into Gibraltar. The airfield was vital to the successful outcome of Operation Torch, which used Gibraltar as a launch pad for the Allied invasion of North Africa. 
Operation Felix outlined a plan for Germany to occupy Gibraltar and later hand it over to Spain. But Franco got cold feet thinking if he let the Wehrmacht in, he wouldn't be able to get rid of them. Over half the population was evacuated during World War II, initially to French Morocco. However, the French German armistice, um, after the French German armistice, all Gibraltarian evacuees were removed. Most went to Britain, Madeira, or Jamaica. And it wasn't until seven years after the end of the war that the evacuees managed to get home. Gibraltar is no, by no means limited to military history either. There are many Art Deco style buildings, such as a rock hotel, which has retained its style to the point that you expect to jump into. Excuse me. <laughs> has retained its style to the point that you expect to bump into Poirot at the Retro Cocktail Bar. Their guest book is a who's who of politics in Hollywood. Errol Flynn, Winston Churchill, Dwight Eisenhower and Bernard Montgomery, Sir Alex Guinness, Alex Ferguson, Keith Moon, Roger Moore and Prince Charles. The only wild monkeys in Europe are found in Gibraltar. Stories say they came from North Africa through an underground tunnel, but probably Moorish travellers brought them. However they arrived, legend says, as long as Barbary macaques are here, Gibraltar will remain British. There was a close call during the Second World War with just seven left. Thankfully, Winston Churchill ordered more to be brought across from North Africa to replenish the colony. In 1954, on the 250th anniversary of Gibraltar becoming British, Queen Elizabeth visited. General Franco was so pissed off, he renewed the claim to sovereignty and restricted freedom of movement. In 67, the first sovereignty referendum was held. Over 99% voted in favour of remaining British. The second one in 2002 was a similar landslide. In 69, Gibraltar attained full self-government. Within a week, Spain closed the border and severed all communication. It remained closed until 1984. In 1973, along with the UK, Gibraltar joined the EEC. In 2020, Britain's exit from the EU forced Gibraltar to withdraw, despite 96% voting to remain. Operation Flavius in 1988 saw the SAS shoot dead three members of the IRA, causing an escalation that led to one of the darkest fortnights of the Troubles. This is said to have been the catalyst that kick-started the peace process. Gibraltar has for a long time been a well-known and popular wedding destination. John Lennon and Yoko Ono tied the knot here in 1969, and Sean Connery liked it so much he did it twice. Speaking of 007, he was buried at sea here in You Only Live Twice. Gibraltar also features in The Living Daylights, the pre-title sequence sees skydivers land on jib and a high-speed chase down the rock in a hijacked Land Rover. And Bond's not the only film. At the end of The Running Man is set in Gibraltar um, as Rex flees from Spanish authorities and steals a plane from the runway. Despite the importance and fame of Gibraltar's airport, it didn't welcome its first commercial flight until 2006. Three years later, Mr. Gibraltar landed, having won Miss World. Mount Atlas, Monscalpe, Jebel Tarek, Gibraltar, Jib, The Rock, whatever you call it, it's a richly woven historical tapestry from every era throughout time, where cultures and stories overlap. You can hardly walk 10 steps without seeing something of historical significance. There are bastions and batteries, tunnels and wharfs, air raid shelters, convents, cathedrals and castles. It has more statues and monuments to historically important people and events per square metre than almost any other place on earth. Every piece of history is perfectly preserved, sympathetically restored and carefully converted. They're currently restoring an artillery gun used in both the world wars to be placed at Europa Point. You can't avoid the history of Gibraltar, it's everywhere you go. A trendy wine bar built in a 17th century counterguard, a shortcut through a 15th century fortified gate, or cinema and bowling in an 18th century fortress. Gibraltar is crammed full of all sorts of history, it's part of everyday life here and has affected people across centuries and continents. So Gibraltar gets my vote for most historical place. Well done, Kate. Um, it was I, epically long. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, because, Holmes, I didn't expect Gibraltar to come up on the list of places, but Kate's done one thing. She's made me want to go somewhere. 
and see it all. Yeah, and I thought so that was. I, I thought that was really interesting and really good. And obviously, as I've never been there, and I've only ever been to Spain for a day, so I don't. The only thing I really know about Gibraltar is sort of obviously the monkeys and you know the sort of British expat. So it's good to get a bigger insight. I mean, I guess. What relation is it to UK now? It's, it's, you said that it was self-governing, but I mean, how does that work in reality? I, I don't know. It could be a stupid question. It's an overseas territory. We've got our own, um, like, chief minister and government and stuff, um, but we're kind of, yeah, we're still part of the UK. And then how many people are there sort of, like, multi-generation Gibraltarians? Um, there's 30,000 residents. I would say... And this is not researched at all. There's about 30,000 residents, but not researched at all. I would say about 20, 25 of them are Gibraltarian. And the multi-generation Gibraltarians are very multi-generation. I mean, they, you know, they've lived there since forever and they've got aunties and uncles. You know, it's a small, small place. So, yeah, they're, they're very, uh, very multi-generational. And is, so, it, is so, it not the... Is it not the case with Spain being so close that they've got relatives in Spain or are they quite um, self-isolating? Uh, Gibraltarians do um, live in Spain. They do have relatives in Spain, but those relatives would consider themselves to be Gibraltarian. The Gibraltarian people are intensely patriotic. I mean, really, really British patriotic. They love everything British. They are so proud to be British. Um, yeah. So they wouldn't consider themselves Spanish, no way. And do you think that would change following the Brexit vote? No, no, they're even more British. I mean, it was such a resounding kind of remain vote from Gibraltar. It was it was 96%, I think, just over. It was the first one that came in, I think, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. The, the, obviously, it, it's, it's important originally, was as you said, it was because it, it guarded the entrance to the Mediterranean. And there were the thoughts there that you mentioned. And actually, I've come across a few First World War soldiers that were pre-war regulars that did a stint at the forts in uh, Gibraltar. Yeah, I mean, military-wise, it's it's how it still does have a huge effect. You know, people go there on their way to and on their way back from um, postings and stuff. And yeah, it's I, I think it's had a massive effect on on huge parts of the world for such a tiny place as well. I mean, obviously, one one criteria we've got to factor in now after James's pitch is how many wild cats are there? There, <laughs> there is a there is a, there is a little uh, like group of yeah of wild cats. We do have wild feral cats. Yeah, yeah, they I mean, are there. I mean, to be fair, as someone who's had a cat cat for years, cats are okay, but monkeys, I think, top cats in this particular circumstance. Yeah, I think so. I reckon they're savage as well. The monkeys are. There's about three hundred of them now, and every time you go anywhere on the Upper Rock, you see them jumping on tourists and opening the zips of their rucksacks and going through their rucksacks while the rucksack is still on people's backs, you know. And you've got these tourists squealing and and like, yeah, it's quite funny. I watched a girl savaged in Thailand by a monkey because she ignored the sign about not getting snacks out at the top. Of, there, were, there were seven waterfalls up the side of this cliff. And at the top one, she decided that she was better than the signs that warned you. There are crazy fucking monkeys here. Do not take a bag of crisps out. And she did. And like literally it came in, punched her in the face and made off with a bag of crisps. Yeah. <laughs> same thing literally there are signs everywhere and they tell you put your rucksack on your front um because yeah. the monkeys just jump on the back 
open the zip up and then have a look through to see what snacks you've got in there. I mean, how badly did she want this bag of crisps that it was worth getting beaten up by a monkey? It was epic. Yeah, I've seen people literally fight monkeys for like a Mars bar or a bag of crisps. And I'm like, just let him have it. Seriously, he's nearly as big as you. (laughs) I might have said before, but I once thought a monkey was going to nick my pants off the balcony railings in India. I I had to bring him in. I was so worried. (laughs) I love it. Right. Okay, Kate, thank you. That was brilliant pitch. Uh, I am going to say let's go get some drinks now because we are about halfway but before we do that uh, he's not here to make a pitch he's just here to rock what he says is the best hat there is in the room and to be fair he is wearing a tricorn hat Zach hello mate hello everyone how are we all doing uh yeah um you said that you know I should turn up so I did what I should do is Mentioned any good hat off and then you came running with your well yeah basically i mean you've got loads of people rocking some nice hats i mean hats off pun fully intended in all its horror um hats off to chris i think beth probably went first i was going for charlie's beret charlie's charlie rocks a, a berry very well but beth has pulled out the police hat and um my my tricon hat now feels inadequate um, I think we're going to have to go away and have a little cry in the corner. Yeah, but I don't think you're breaking any bylaws by wearing that. She probably is. <laughs> there is that, but it's Beth. Um, depending on how far we are in, uh, in in the evening, she probably doesn't give a shit anymore. So. You know what? I'm not going to grass her because I actually have a picture of myself wearing a stolen West Midlands police hat outside West Bromwich Albion the day we won the league. Uh, so... On that note, let's go get some drinks and then we'll come back. Hello and welcome back. Uh, Right, okay, we've been very European-centric, haven't we, so far, Holmes? Uh, I wonder if it's going to stay that way. Where do you want to go next? Let's go. Should we go for Clive next? Oh, dear. Oh, well. Western civilization can trace its roots back to Egypt and the Nile Valley and from there... Its centre moved to Greece, and thence Rome and Istanbul, before branching out to Toledo, Madrid, Paris, Vienna, Berlin, Medway and London, and a quick hop, skip and a jump to New York and Washington. In the Americas, the Incas, the Aztecs, the Mayans have all come and gone. The great Russian Empire emerged late in Moscow before moving to Leningrad, oh, sorry, St. Petersburg. And then back to Moscow. Civilizations have come and gone, been conquered and colonized in India and elsewhere in Asia and Africa. Australasia and Antarctica are yet to have their day. But throughout all of this time, one center of civilization has continued and remained fixed in one place and continues to operate as a force in the world today and is likely to do so for many years to come. That place, a continuous centre of, of civilization for at least and probably far more than 3,000 years, is Beijing in China. The first evidence of habitation in Beijing occurred between 770,000 to 230,000 BCE, when Homo, Homo erectus Peking man wandered around and did whatever pre-Homo sapiens people used to do. The first signs of Homo sapiens found in Dongcheng in downtown Beijing 
comes from artifacts dating back to around 25,000 BCE. And in 1996, some 2,000 Stone Age implements were found from around 24,000 years ago. Farming was established as long ago as 5,000 BCE and painted pottery, which anyone who watches the great pottery show throwdown will know is a hallmark of a developed culture have been found from that period. On that point, if you go to the National Museum in Taiwan, they have a collection of artifacts smuggled out by the Kuomintang at the end of the Chinese Civil War and the communist takeover. They have enough artifacts there to change their exhibition every six months for 50 years but they're all small artifacts which were able to be carried, the large ones they left behind. But there are absolutely exquisite vases and plates and bowls and cups from about 5,000 years ago, showing the depth of civilization that was around at that time. In other words, Beijing has been at the center of a major civilization since civilization first came around and long before the word civilization was coined. The origin story of Beijing is lost in legend. What we know is that a city existed by the 11th century BCE and that it didn't spring out of the earth at that time. It existed in some form before then and it sat at the heart of an empire by then. Recorded history supported by archaeological evidence shows that in the 11th century BCE, the Zhu dynasty ousted the Shang dynasty, Sima Kuan, Writing a thousand years later tells how King Wu of Zhu defeated the last Shang king and conferred the title ruler on the city-state Ji on one of his followers. Ji is obs Beijing. Confucius, writing only 500 years after the event, gives more of the story. I won't go to it in detail here, as time simply will not permit me to explore 3,000 years of such rich history. There's buckets of it. Permit, permit me instead to give you the highlights, or if you will, the table of contents. In the 11th century, the state of Xi and the Zhu dynasty was founded. In the 7th century BCE, the state of Yan, Zhu dynasty, warring states. In um, 20, 2021 BC, the Qin dynasty, 2006 BC, the state of Yan, and 202 BC, Han. And it goes on. By 100 years BCE, the population of Beijing was 280,000. Dynasties came and dynasties went. By 607 in the Christian era, the population was 458,000, almost half a million people living there in 607 BC. And it went on. The Tan dynasty, the Yang dynasty, the Yang dynasty, and then various others popped in. By 1403, when the Ming dynasty was at its height, Beijing was the largest city in the world, and it stayed the largest city in the world for almost 500 years, only being eclipsed by London in the Victorian era. So much has happened in that time. In Beijing's, oh, sorry, today, Beijing is home to about 21 million people, cutting into the shade cities like Rome or London or even New York. So much has happened. Invasions, 
drastic change, foreign incursion, attempts at colonization, colonization through trade, rebellions and revolutions, followed by over the past 73 years by one of the most autocratic centralist governments ever known, lording it over one seventh of the world's population and expanding its influence in every continent. The great leap forward, the cultural revolution, Tiananmen Square and the Chinese economic imperialism and economic growth, all orchestrated from Beijing. But let me end with two quotations because there is a rule that I have to have at least one quotation. And these two quotations between them and a few words encapsulate much of what Beijing and its history is about. Evan Osnoff said, by tradition, Beijing is a city of walls, sheltering its intrigues and ambitions behind a series of concentric barriers from the Great Wall down to the courtyard homes that draw sunlight only from the gardens at their core. And Ai Weiwei said, cities really are mental conditions. Beijing is a nightmare, a constant nightmare. I hear your tales of Rome, of Istanbul, of Jerusalem and of Medway. And historic as those places are, none have been as important and important for so long as Beijing. Well done, Clive. And well done for not. I honestly, when I picked you, didn't know that you had like not done Europe and gone the other way. It's brilliant that you did, and brave as well, uh, because you're not an scholar. Uh, Holmes, convinced? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes and no. And the, the only reason I'm not is down to my own ignorance, really. As obviously a, a, chap of, a British chap of a certain age, I just don't really know that much about China. So, Clive, I was trying to see how it can, you know, it's commonly thought that Mesopotamia is the cradle of civilization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How does it compare with, with that, for example? China has had a very, I mean, everywhere has history. That China has been a concentration of history and Beijing within China, a total concentration of history for a long time. So whereas there are stories going on everywhere, intrigues, wars, um, murders, dynasties being overtaken and coming back again and all of that sort of thing, there's been such a focus in China and I cannot pretend to know an iota as much about Chinese history as I do European history. But my goodness me, they their civilization 
it has been stronger and goes back further than ours ever could. When we were dressed in woad and running around in Medway, they were making exquisite artworks. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I don't dispute that. It took 5,000 years for agricultural sort of technology to reach the UK, didn't it, for the Middle East? But how does it compare with the Middle East, for example, ancient Egypt? Is it about the same time? Well, but we just don't know that because it's far away. and so that, so That's the thing. It, it started about the same time as ancient Egypt, but it's kept going, whereas there aren't that many pharaohs wandering around today. <laughs> Sorry, you broke up. I did hear the last bit. I, I thought you said because there's so, not that many fairies wandering around today, but pharaohs, pharaohs. Oh, okay, okay. And also, I, I I like the way that you always start yours with a bit of filler because I was thinking, what's Clive doing? And I wrote down Egypt, crossed it out. Greece, crossed it out. Rome, crossed it out. <laughs> Istanbul. I thought we've already had that. Americans. I thought you were going to end up doing America. To be fair, no, didn't. I think I did Beijing. <laughs> uh, are there? Are, are there any influences from Beijing that we that we can point to in here in Europe from ancient Absolutely. Beijing? Absolutely, if you think about everything that Marco Polo brought back um, from pasta in Italy to you know China crockery and stuff, there's loads of things that come back from China. Um, there are things in mathematics and science, gunpowder. Who could forget that? That's a quite an important bit. I mean, the First World War wouldn't have been very good without gunpowder, would it? Slightly less bloody. Um, well, I don't know. My mm. scenes in Gladiator are pretty hardcore. Yeah. What do you reckon, Lockie? I, I think there may have been other ways of developing things like cordite and, you know, fueling a war. I'm not sure it's a selling point either. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Uh, but well done, Clive. Uh, right, okay. We've got a couple more to do before I start just winding you lot up, basically. So let's go to... I I, I know exactly where we're going to end up now. Alina, I want to take a massive stab in the dark and guess Poland. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was going to be really witty there and go, no. <laughs> but yes, yes. So do you know what? I'm actually feeling a little self-conscious here because I'm going up against some really good arguments, like really good arguments, like thousands of years of history arguments. Mine's only um, like 1,000 and so, however, I can't do mathematics. But you're doing what Chris did, didn't you? Which is uh, just going with your heart, basically. I am. I am going with my heart because however many people to this day call this city ugly do one because it's not it's um there's a lot more to it I, this is actually i really apologize it's gonna be a bit long because i've got to give a bit of background information before i start really ranting into this kit bugger off <laughs> how many of you i've got a question how many of your places have three uprisings complete and utter destruction not once not twice but three times and have been completely and utterly rebuilt. 
Nobody Saturday knows. night in Gillingham. Yeah, <laughs> that's just one Saturday night in Gillingham. And Beth's got her hand up. I mean, but Beijing very famously yeah. had obviously the Boxer Rebellion and then the Spurning mm. of the Summer Palace, the Yuan Dynasty invasions, and we're right? still not. Stop raining on my parade. <laughs> also, Stop raining um, on my parade. I had 14 sieges. That's a siege, it's not an uprising, it's not patriotism, it's not, you know, rising up against the oppressor. I think, I think the people who were being sieged on were patriotic. <laughs> You're all shitting on my parade, go away. We had a sex riot. Yeah. <laughs> He's just going to be like, I call sex riot on every single one. Alina, come on, come on, I'm with you. Right, anyway, back to this. So I'm going to talk about the one and only place that I'm in right now, Warsaw. So Warsaw's, I've got to tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to apologise right now because I'm really bad at like pre-World War II stuff. So please uh, do not call it an eyesore unless you talk about the ugly building kit. Anyway, history can be traced back to the ninth, uh, ninth century, actually, which is quite interesting. Um, I did, couldn't be bothered to, to talk about that kind of time period because nobody's really interested in this room about like the ninth century. But what's really interesting no, James, you're not interested. Anyway, and stop. I can see your messages popping up. You're distracting me. So in the 15th century, it's really interesting because it actually becomes the capital um, uh, the, of the Duchy of uh, Mazovia. And then in 1526, Mazovia and Warsaw actually become absorbed into the Kingdom of Poland. So Warsaw was never originally in the Kingdom of Poland. A very long, difficult history. Come join me on pole position. This is where we start talking about that time period. Um, in 1569, the same, which is Parliament, meets in Poland, which is a really big thing. So basically, Parliament starts meeting in 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 sorry in Warsaw, blondemoment.com. 1573, kings are elected there. This becomes absolutely massive. And you've got to remember, Warsaw is not a capital city at this point. The capital city of the Kingdom of Poland is in Kraków, or Krakow, as some people call it. Don't call it Krakow, it is Kraków. In 1611, Zygmunt III moves his court to Warsaw, which now officially makes it the new capital of Poland. And can I just tell you right now, a lot of people from Krakow are really pissy about this because they still call Krakow the original capital of Poland. And they've got a dragon. And they got a dragon. Wait, that's not part of my argument. Stop for advocating for Krakow. Okay. I like the dragon. <laughs> we have a mermaid in Warsaw. Don't know if that helps. It better be better than the shit one Nikolai took me to in Copenhagen. No, well, uh, I can tell you a different. Uh, wait, let, I'll come back to the history of the mermaid. Actually, really interesting. I'll wait for wait for it. So I'm giving you a bit of background history. It's a bit boring before we get into the nitty gritty stuff. 1655. There's a Swedish invasion, which again it destroys Warsaw. Warsaw has to rebuild itself. In 1791, see. Um, this is something for you, Holmes. Poland. What year was that? Let me notes. Seventeen ninety-one. Yeah. Poland has the first ever constitution in Europe. Yeah, what the fuck's that for me? Couldn't give a shit about that. It's political legal shit. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so instead of, I mean, it's the first. Hey, in Europe. First constitution in Europe. In Europe, that? yes. Yeah. But it is not the first in the world. The first in the world is America, which was only a couple of years before. But it is literally the first of its kind in Europe. And it, uh, it's for the dual monarchy of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It gives political equity between nobility and townsfolk and peasants and now protected under the government. This pisses off Poland's neighbours because they're now putting people on equal par with each other. 
which brings about the second Polish partition in 1793. And just so you all know, on the 3rd of May, Konstytucja 3 Maja, it's a national holiday in Poland. So we get that off, along with Flag Day. It's really great. It's like a really long weekend. In 1794, there is the first Warsaw Uprising. I'm going to bring this word back because you know, you just know I'm going to talk about 1944 and you know I'm going to talk about the Warsaw Uprising. But this is the first Warsaw Uprising. And this is to throw off the control of the Russians because Poland has been partitioned. Um, and this is not long after Kosciuszko, Americans, you should know who Kosciuszko is. Come on, he's like a really massive hero. It's his victory after Ratswawica. The Poles lose <laughs> again and Warsaw's looted and burnt to the ground. The inhabitants are murdered in retaliation. So we're looking at approximately 20,000 people are being murdered at this point. Civilians, people average Joe. Poland's then divided between Austria, Prussia and Russia. This brings about the third partition and, and Warsaw now becomes the capital of southern Prussia. So now we've got three partitions of Poland. Poland is now non-existent for the next 123 years. We're going to kind of skip through 123 years quick. This next bit is for Zach. Yes, I am going to bring about a bit of Napoleon. Napoleon, Napoleon, Napoleon. In 1806, Warsaw is liberated by Napoleon and becomes the capital of the Duchy of Warsaw. This is really important because Poland is now supporting Napoleon, Marie Walewska, yes, but they're supporting him because they concede that they could possibly get a free Poland. Alas, this does not happen because in 1815, after the Congress of Vienna, the area of Warsaw is conceded to Russia. Yay! Not. After the defeat of Napoleon, and it becomes the Congress of Poland. Poland is still under, I would say, occupation. The Polish constitution gets violated by the Russians. Who was surprised? Nobody. So in November 1830, there becomes a uprising, which becomes to known as the November Uprising. And it starts in Warsaw. It leads to the Polish-Russian War in 1831, which, can anyone guess, fails. Uh, for the retaliation of this, the same, so the parliament is suspended, universities are closed, and basically Polish culture gets eradicated. Warsaw starts to flourish in the 19th century under, under, the, uh, under the Russian rule. But like I mentioned, culture identity takes a huge hit. Schools are closed, more Russian Orthodox churches are open. And this is actually another part of the reason why um, the First World War becomes really important in this context especially under Russian rule, because the Poles really suffered under the Russian rule compared to, for example, under the Prussian or the Austrians. Uh, it was a better life under the Austrians. In Russia, it was really poor and it was very difficult to kind of live in those conditions. So therefore, the January uprising breaks out in 1864. So how many have got loads of uprisings? This one fails again. Poland is in the shit. For Alex, World War One. I'm going to say not a lot. I've got one sentence. Sorry. August 1915, the German army enters Warsaw. And what does it do? Demolishes all the fucking bridges. So Warsaw's again being destroyed. The Germans are in need of the support of the Poles. They have to get the support. So they're super nice. And they lifted all the restrictions that the Russians put in. So you've gone from Russian occupation to now 1915 to German occupation. Fun times. Hold on a minute. Where are we going to see this? Oh, wait a minute. In a few years time. 1918, Poland regains independence. 
Uh, funny enough, our Independence Day is the same day as um, at the end of the First World War. So on the 11th of November, Poland regains its independence because Piłsudski is given complete and utterly utter military authority. We're going to come back to Piłsudski. Why, why is Warsaw really important at this time period? Well, it doesn't get any easier for Poland after 1918. Poland now has to literally rebuild everything. It is an absolute chaos because you're putting back together a country under different, different rules. So from Austria, Russia and Prussia. So it, it is just an absolute total, total chaos. But this brings something else. 1919, February of 1919. Lucky, do one. Warsaw is, oh no, he said Warsaw. Okay, no, that's fine. February 1919 brings about the Polish-Soviet war. The Soviets do not like that they have had to give away land to Poland. So they're going to come back and take it away. So they invade Poland and the war lasts for about two years, two, three years till March 1921. But why does Warsaw come to this? It's actually really interesting. In August 1920, so the Soviets managed to cross, because if we look at the map of Poland at that time period, parts of Ukraine and Belarus were incorporated into Poland. So it's quite a long distance between um, Warsaw and um, the Soviet borders. Now, the Soviets managed to get all the way from Russia close, literally, to Warsaw. And in August 1920 is when you've got the battle for Warsaw, which is called Tsud nad Wisła, or the miracle on the River Vistula. So it's fought on August the 12th to August 25th. The Red Army forces approach the Polish capital of Warsaw, uh, nearby the Modlin fortresses, which is in the north. And on August 16th, the Polish uh, forces are commanded by who? Josef Piłsudski, of course. He counteracts from the south, disrupting the enemy's offensive, forcing the Russian forces into a disorganized withdrawal eastwards and behind the Neman River. So we're looking at about 10,000 Russians killed, 500 missing, 30,000 wounded, 66,000 taken prisoner, compared to Polish losses of 4,500 killed, 10,000 missing and 22,000 wounded. It is a lot lower than the Russian losses. This is a huge and utter defeat for the Russians. Yet again, Poland defeats Russia. And they now tell between their legs, running back to their little Russian place. Interwar period is a little bit boring. I'm going to skip through it. 12th of May, 1926, Piłsudski, again, he comes up. He has a coup d'etat. Uh, he basically didn't like who was being put into government. So he brought in the army and told everyone to go screw themselves. He is taking power. Funny enough, he doesn't actually accept the seat of president, but he does play a very important role, wink, wink, uh, in uh, political life. So we all know who held basically all the power. It was Piłsudski. He's also known, by the way, as the father of, of modern day Poland. So... In, uh, to a certain point, he was actually really good for reconstructing Poland. Right, let's skip to the good part now. First September 1939, Poland gets invaded. Warsaw is attacked on the 9th of September. So nine days after the attack, Poland at this point is being severely bombed. And Warsaw is completely, it's part of it, just completely destructed, especially uh, the royal palace in the, in the old town. It's basically surrenders on the 27th of September. It, it lasted, compared to most cities, Warsaw lasted a really long time. They held out for a very, very long time. They, uh, the Germans enter on the 1st of October. 
Overall, you've got 31,000 people dead. 10% of the city is destroyed. Now, 10%. Hold that thought. At this point, only 10% of the city is destroyed. It's about to get worse. Warsaw is turned into a German provincial city. What was supposed to be turned? Culture was completely utterly destroyed. Again, Polish identity is taken away. It's wiped away. You have got mass arrests. You've got executions. For example, the Wawer massacre on the 26th to the 27th of December, 107 Poles were murdered because two German soldiers were, were, uh, were shot in the street. This is a, such a reoccurring thing where, for example, reprisals are happening. You've got roundups. I'm going to give you something very interesting. A friend gave me this comparison and I always use it now. So if you look at roundups, because roundups also happened in France and roundups happened in, in Poland at the same time. And if you like take, let's say we take 100 people from France and 100 people from Poland. In France, 100 people would be arrested and 90% of them would be released, let's say, on average. So about, let's say, 10 people were held behind, could have been sent to concentration camps, whatever happened to the, to, to the French. In Poland, in a roundup, you would have 90% of these people would be fully and utterly arrested, executed, sent to a labour camp, sent to a concentration camp, put into prison, or just completely and utterly disappeared, and possibly 10 could be released. So this is the difference in the occupation and the difference in the roundups and the way that the people were being treated in the East versus the way that people were being treated in the West. And roundups in Warsaw, they would literally block off two ends of the street and just arrest everybody in the middle. Or if they wanted to, they'd just go in uh, and, and shoot everybody and murder them as, as it goes. October 1940. Anyone know? The ghetto opens in Warsaw. You've got half a million people, half a million people for 2.6 square kilometres. Can you imagine what the living conditions are? People are being starved. They have no medical treatment. They are dying in droves. 19th of April, the ghetto rises up because at this point you've got mass deportations to Treblinka, mass deportations to concentration and death camps. People are being murdered and not coming back at all. The ghetto uprisings last for a month. So we're now on the next uprising. The survivors end up getting murdered. Civilians are sent uh, either to death or concentration camps. And the info is really interesting. The info is actually getting back to the West. The West doesn't give a shit. Nobody actually gives a shit that these people are fighting for their lives. I've literally just edited a bunch of documents for this. And it's actually horrific to see what the West and how the West is responding to all of these murders going back. You've got massive resistance uh, going on, especially in Warsaw. So Kedib, for example, they had a massive, massive, massive uh, battalion operating within Warsaw, my grandfather being one of them. For example, they took part in Operation Cuchera, which happened on the 1st of February. Funnily enough, I actually mentioned this in our chat the other day, uh, where they executed a, uh, a German uh, high commander in, in Warsaw. And uh, it was very close to um, where Boris was not long ago. Moving on swiftly, you've got, for example, operations like Rode and Arsna, where they rescued a group, platoon rescued their platoon leader, reprisals, uh, 100 people got shot for that. And this is just constant and constant and constant. My grandfather also took part in these sorts of missions. They executed traitors. They executed people who had given up partisans, who'd given up Jews, who'd given up being a patriot. 
Moving on very swiftly, July, the Russians are close to the city of Warsaw. What happens on the 1st of August 1944? The Warsaw Uprising. And this is the biggest uprising of Polish history. And unfortunately, also ends with the most, uh, most killed. The most interesting thing and horrific thing at this point is between the 5th and 12th of August, starts a systematic murder of the Polish population in Wola. Between 50 to 70,000 civilians are murdered by Rona and the Derlewanger Brigade. And if you don't know who the Derlewanger Brigade is, I'm not going to, because I can stand here and talk for the Derlewanger Brigade for hours. Go and look up Derlewanger, a sadistic bastard who didn't get his comeuppance at the end of the war. There's instances, actually, no, I'm not. Alex is going to kill me. I'm not going to go into detail. Basically, it was brutal. It was disgusting. It was horrific what these people actually went through, being burnt alive, being shot and all sorts of things. So we're talking between 50 to 70,000 people in a matter of days, in a matter of days. So the Warsaw Uprising lasts 63 days. On the 2nd of October, you've got capitulation. The very interesting thing is, is that um, civilians at this point are also being completely and utterly deported. You've got being drove, driven into Auschwitz, being driven into labour camps. Both of my grandmothers were taken into forced labour into the, into the Third Reich. Nobody is spared. Women, children, everybody. Everybody is deported out of the city. What is the result of the Warsaw Uprising? 15,200 insurgents are killed and missing, 5,000 wounded, 15,000 sent to prison of war camps, including my grandfather. Among the civilians, uh, among the, sorry, among the civilians, 180,000 people, let me rephrase that, 180,000 people are killed in 63 days and approximately 700,000 are expelled from the city. 55,000 civilians were sent to concentration camps, 13,000 of them alone sent to Auschwitz. 13,000 people during the Warsaw Uprising, during the 63 days, are sent to Auschwitz. The material losses, huge material losses, estimated 10,455 buildings, 923 historical buildings, that's 94% of Poland's historical buildings are lost. 25 churches, 14 libraries, including the national libraries, 81 elementary schools, 64 high schools, Warsaw University and the Polytechnical University, and most of the monuments. About a million inhabitants lost everything, absolutely everything. During the Warsaw, uh, during the Second World War, two point, uh, sorry, 85% of Warsaw's left bank and buildings are destroyed, 85% of the left bank. 25% was lost during the Warsaw Uprising and 35% as the result of the systematic German actions after the uprising. So combining the war in 1939, the Warsaw Ghetto Rising and the Warsaw Uprising, this is the extent of the damage that happens to this city. After the capitulation, you've got the 17th of October to the 30th of November, 190 tonnes, 190 tonnes of goods are taken from Warsaw. This place is completely and utterly cleared out. Every single thing, a mattress, clothing, a, a, a can of peaches, everything is frigging gone. I was going to read, because uh, I actually pulled this out for this was Spielmann's diary. I'm just going to read one, one or two lines to, 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 um, just to give you an idea of what it looks like. So I was alone, alone just in a single building or even a single part of the city, but alone in a whole city that only two and a half months ago had a population of a million and a half and one, is the, one of the richer cities of Europe. It now consisted of the chimneys of burnt out buildings 
pointing to the sky and whatever walls the bombing had spared, a city of rubble and ashes under which the centuries-old culture of my people and the bodies of hundreds of thousands of murdered victims lay buried, rotting in the warmth of these late autumn days and filling the air with a dreadful stench. I mean, that gives you an idea of the state of Warsaw at this point. It's absolutely horrific. So you've got the Germans are out of there by mid-November. The Russians take till the middle of January, 17th of January, to enter Warsaw. So what they've done is the Russians just sit and watch Warsaw burn to the ground completely and utterly. And then, unfortunately, 1st of February, the Polish, Polish, uh, the Polish People's, bloody, it's a bit of a mouthful, Polish People's Republic is proclaimed in Warsaw. That's it. Communism now strikes the Poland. So let's move on to a bit of communism. I don't like communism, but yeah, let's do a bit of communism. So what happens during this communist period? <sighs> Communists come in and demolish most of the buildings that could have been rebuilt. Uh, I'm now going to rant about the ugly building, which was built in 1955. There was actually buildings still standing in that area that could have been reconstructed. And Stalin promoted his propaganda films and propaganda photos to show that Warsaw was completely destroyed. Warsaw was not completely destroyed. Okay, Stalin, you are a bastard for destroying incredibly beautiful buildings that could have been reconstructed, that could have brought Warsaw back to its beautiful and utter glory. But no, alas, no, you decide to destroy Polish culture and Polish identity, to build your ugly monstrosity that still stands there and is still ugly, by the way, ugly as fuck, even though I appreciate it as a historian now and I think it should stay and people shouldn't tear it down, but the ugliest fucking building in the world, which is a gift to Warsaw. Stalin, go fucking do one, okay? And get rid of your shitty, ugly building. Anyway, um, the Soviets also remodernize and rebuild the old town that takes up until the 1970s there's a very interesting new museum in the old town which is down one of the back streets if you want to look at the reconstruction it's very interesting it shows you the stages of the reconstructions uh, Mokotov prison is one of the most notorious prisons it wasn't during the second world war it becomes notorious during the communist period it takes the life of people like uh, Vitor Pilecki, who is the patron of my institute, uh, Hieronym Dekutovsky, General Nil, among so many others who were persecuted and murdered within its cells. It's opening up into a museum, I think, in the next couple of years, and I highly recommend people go and see it. It's very interesting, but very daunting. And then I'm just, you know what, I'm just going to throw in a little bit more. So a bit of martial law, December 81, a bit of independence. Solidarność isn't born in Warsaw, so it kind of doesn't make it as exciting. That's all in Gdańsk. But all in all, Warsaw has now become a very vibrant city. It's been reconstructed. You can still find uh, traces of war, as traces of bullet holes, uh, bombs and all sorts of things. Certain things have been preserved, but you also seem to find the really ugly buildings, communist blocks that just make the city look grey. So for me, Warsaw is one of the most historical places. It has gone through an incredible amount of devastation, an incredible amount of war, but it is still standing. And Stalin didn't want to reconstruct it at the beginning, but it was reconstructed because people started coming back to the city that they love. They wanted to reconstruct it. They wanted to bring it back to life. Warsaw was brought to the ground and it rose up through the ashes just like a phoenix. So for me, Warsaw is the most impressive and historical place. Thank you. Ran over. Ran over. Holmes, are you convinced? I think that's a strong shout, actually. I mean, it was a slightly weak start because you said... 9th century, couldn't be bothered. So I wondered where we were going to go with this. But um, 
Yeah, I, I didn't realise, because obviously I, I only really know about, I don't know anything pre-Second World War that happened to Poland. So I was interested to hear that, you know, the, the Russians had a go at, at Poland a number of times before that. What, what was that? What's their beef? Um, it, it's, it just goes back to a long time. I don't know what it is because we, we're so similar in culture and we're so similar in, I'd say, language to a certain point that I don't know why they hate us. Why do the Czechs hate us? Oh, because we probably stole some of their land. That's probably why. It's, it's, it's a power grab, really. The Russians will always hate the Poles and the Poles will always hate the Russians, same as the Poles will always hate the Germans and the Germans will always hate the Poles. It's a deep-rooted, like, deep-rooted hate. And, the, and the, the dislike of the Germans, that goes back a bit pre-First of War as well, doesn't it, from what you said? Oh, my God. Do you know what? You need to listen to my Piast Dynasty uh, conversation uh, with Darius because that explains a bit of why the hatred began. I'm going to tell you a really interesting tidbit. So the word Niemcy means Germans in Polish. And it actually, I didn't realise this, it translates to Niemowcy, which means can't understand you. So we call them the people we can't understand. I mean, there I are think. worse things to be called. I mean, coming from, moving from the Midlands to London, I've had people say that to me on occasion, to be honest. So, um, And I quite like going back to the really early stuff. It seems quite progressive. You had a parliament and then you, your kings were elected. That was a mess. The way the kings were elected in Poland, we had, uh, we had a French um, uh, Dauphin elected as a Polish king for a few months. It doesn't. It doesn't work like, for example, in England, where it, it you know, the, it passes down to the son and or daughter or whatever. That's not how it worked in Poland. In Poland, kings and queens were elected. It's a very interesting history, actually. And then move, I'm jumping around a little bit here. And then obviously you said, you know, information about the occupation of Warsaw was was, it was given to the West and nobody gave a shit. Which I think there's, I think there's something in that. I always feel a little bit bad being English. And it's not my area, but obviously, you know, we went to war basically to save Poland and they did fuck all. And they gave us the Russians at the end of it. It seems you know, a slightly odd, odd, odd course of behaviour to me. It's um, it is a very sore point for Poles at the, at the end of the day, because we literally swapped one occupation for another. And it was a really hard, hard thing for us. We didn't have freedom till 89. Or true no. freedom. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's that's not not great. I mean, I, I have been to Warsaw, and I went to the old town bit, and had a lovely meal. I thought it was quite nice, and I did go. I liked the tower. I went up the tower, but obviously, I didn't live there as an oppressed citizen for sixty or however many years it was. So, do you want to know? There's a good, there's a really interesting joke. Do you know where the best view of Warsaw is? Go on. At the top of the uh, Palace of Culture, because you can't see it. Oh, right. Is that is that what it is? Is the Tower of the Palace of Culture? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a there's a lot of stuff that's happened there, and there's a lot of stuff that not only happened there, but also you know affected a lot of other places in Europe as well. So I think that's a pretty strong shout. I thought you might do Auschwitz, obviously. obviously. Alex didn't let me. She said no. I'm not allowed. She did an, an alternative twenty minute rant about misery and death instead. <laughs> I, I mean, had to get the misery and death in there. I mean, I did. I mean, but one of the tests I thought I might use was if, if I've been there, I was, in some ways, I like going to places where you don't, you, you don't have to imagine very hard to see the history. And Auschwitz is, 
a very clear example of that, although the history is horrific. You know, I think the Colosseum in Rome is another one where you can just picture up and you're like, wow, this is almost what it must have been like without me having to think type thing. But so I thought you might have done Auschwitz, but nevertheless, that was that was a really strong pitch. Oh, thank you. Well done. Right, Lockie, cheer us up, mate. That chance. Oh, no, actually, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> with, <laughs> let's do, what, should we talk about the cradle of civilization? Go for it. I think Charlie's going to have a little squirm uh, now. Yes, okay, right. So I'm going to do, I think we need a definition, don't we? I do like my defining terms. Um, history's most historic place is what we're debating. <laughs> um What's the st- history? What does that mean? The study of past events, the study of change over time, possibly. I, do, I think the fact that we've got prehistory or pre-literary history implies that the development of writing systems and records surviving to the present day, or at least to the point where historians can have a look at it, uh, is, is a fairly valid basis on which to judge a place or something even as being historical. Okay, in this context, uh, the place where um, the earliest writing systems uh, developed, um, where scripts and records were first kept, and where civilization, quite frankly, began, has to be in contention for the most historic place. It has to be. (laughs) It literally just has to be. I present to your consideration, people, Mesopotamia. Um, Now, even if the only thing in the world that had happened there was that sort of writing had been invented, not not sort of, I mean, there were kind of scripty kind of um, pictorial things beforehand, but actually like a coded writing system had been invented. That would be cool. Okay. But the fact that the area's history is compelling, it's bang up to date uh, and relevant to us in today's world with events hitting headlines right through into the 21st century, uh, it's, it's big. Uh, let's let's kind of get into the early days, first of all, without just doing a list of stuff and, and annoying homes. Um, civilization, the start of that. How does civilization start? Well, obviously, uh, speaking as an East Anglian, I'd say groups of people working together in communities, um, keeping livestock and farming, um, growing crops, things like that. It's been happening in Mesopotamia for around about 11,000 years uh, or so. Um, Keeping pigs and sheep, which I can relate to and appreciate. Um, that's the earliest livestock find. Um, there's quite a few places with stories like that from kind of not too far away from there, to be honest. Well, they're not earlier. Um, so this is the start of that. I think beer brewing is a big deal. I always quite like this, uh, the fact that, you know, the earliest evidence um, of beer brewing. I mean, the best stories start with a beer uh, anyway, don't they? Earliest evidence for beer brewing uh, is a tablet from around about 4000 BC uh, found in Samaria uh, depicting people drinking beer. Nice. That's a good, that's a good start for Mesopotamia. Um, this is actually before proper writing systems and script developed. That happened around about 3,500 years ago, we think. So maybe just a, a little bit later. Uh, and Mesopotamia probably pips um, Egypt and China. Um, with its cuneiform script as opposed to uh, hieroglyphics. Um, but I'd say at least as important as, as the writing itself is, is what's said, how seriously it's taken and how much they value the knowledge as well. And the answers are what's said is 
amazing and important and hilarious and gives us uh, you know a great clue as to what life was like back then it was taken immensely seriously and they valued the knowledge enough to copy it all up and store it and keep it uh, at a time when Mesopotamia was the base for the largest empire the world had ever seen this is huge. Um, the first library to contain all knowledge was a compendium of tablets recording history and science and correspondence and contracts and omens and accounts and laws. And it was all kept in Nineveh, uh, the old capital uh, of the Assyrian Empire in Mesopotamia. What a thing uh, that is. So you're talking about history and, and how historic a place can be. First library to contain all knowledge. What a big deal. Laws. Let's talk about laws uh, for a second. I know Chris mentioned laws. Um, I think I can pip Chris by about 2000 years uh, in laws um, because with civilization, the early days of history come early examples of civil responsibility and authority. And the earliest known ones of these come from Mesopotamia. Um, I guess mo most famous is the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, of course, although there, there were earlier um, law collections uh, found from other Mesopotamian cities uh, like Ur, uh, for example. Oh, the city of Ur. <laughs> That's amazing. The Sumerian city. Again, it is, it is just spectacular. It's provided us with so much evidence on, on Mesopotamian life. It's got games. It's got high art. It's got biblical references to events like the Great Flood, um, as well as things like, which are totally banal, but actually just touching as as the kind of you know just everyday sorts of things you've got the earliest known written complaint in the world uh, which is this little clay tablet where some guy's been sent the wrong grade of copper and and he's, he's feels so strongly about it he's like he's giving me the wrong grade of copper. quick pass me that piece of clay i'm going to give this guy a piece of my mind dear sir he etches out in in, in clay i'm I'd right to complain in the strongest possible terms du, 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 and, and then has the strength of will to fire the clay and send it off to this guy and give him a piece of his mind it's gorgeous all this sort of stuff and the fact you've got this level of functioning society i mean that that uh, clay tablet complaining about the copper is from about 1750 bc or so um which is about a thousand years before romulus and remus start taking an interest in wolf tits i think so you see what I mean? You see what I'm getting at and kind of the depth of the history and the length of time it's, it's been around. Um, after the king who created the great library died, yeah, it's true, the empire broke up, uh, the Assyrian empire that was, but then it's the staging ground. This area is the staging ground for other great histories and huge empires, including Persians, uh, Alexander, the Parthians. There's some guys from Italy who come along for a while. Um, uh, Persians again, uh, Arabs, Mongols. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, and it's, it, this, this area is valued and fought over by everyone, right up to modern times, when the British get involved uh, as well. They decide they're going to fire their next generation of warships with oil rather than coal, uh, Chris. Um, this, this is for you, big boy. Um, there's quite a lot of oil in Mesopotamia for firing, firing Dreadnought-class uh, battleships, uh, of course. Uh, the Great War in the area uh, is a story of who could fuck up the least, quite frankly. Uh, and ultimately, that was the British Empire, who proceeded to carve the region up with the French, uh, which, of course, 
cause no problems at all uh, and everything was fine no in, in serious in defense of <laughs> britain at the time there was plenty of conflict in the area before sykes pico I, I don't think the british influence helped all that much uh though anyway we, we are drifting into the modern world though and i'm, I'm conscious of not just delivering a, a chronology because it's just too long uh with such a such a huge amount of history We've got Saddam Hussein, Iran, Iraq, two Gulf Wars, Kurdistan, then ISIS. And I, actually, I think that's the saddest point of Mesopotamia's history, uh, ISIS, because you you've got the efforts to actually destroy that history, which is just so mid, as well as the people uh, themselves. I, some people will have seen a few years ago the, the fourth plinth project on Trafalgar Square. Um, what you had was a representation of, a, of an Assyrian gate guardian. Uh, up there uh, as a kind of awareness raiser when ISIS was doing its absolute worst and, and destroying all those things that didn't fit with their narrow uh, cultural view uh, of the world. That Assyrian style gate guardian was actually made out of pieces of tin can from a food canning factory in Baghdad, which was also destroyed by ISIS. So they're destroying modern lives as well as the priceless culture and heritage uh, of, of this amazing um, area, but the fact that this made this on made it onto Trafalgar Square puts it front and centre in everyday Londoners' lives as well. So it's relevant to us as well as things like script and beer and civilization, things like that. So there you go. I'm going I'm to wrap up. You've got about eleven thousand years of cooperation and farming and brewing writing and creating, sex and death, eating and drinking, administering and conquering. It is the cradle of civilization, but it's also the scene of modern atrocities as well. It's never not battered, this area, and it has mattered for the longest of anywhere. And its influence is evident in everything that we see around us and therefore must be history's most historic place in history. Well done, Lockie. And I don't know if you knew you were going down this route, but Holmes has a personal connection to Mesopotamia and the Tigris, don't you, Holmes? I do. My great uncle died in February 1916 in the siege of Kut. He was with the second Dorsets. No known grave. He's on the uh, Basra Memorial. And also, I've got a little bit of a secret thing for the whole Mesopotamia cuneiform thing as well. So much better than hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics are too flashy, too showy. <laughs> do, you, do you know what? Uh, I, I really like the uh, other link with the First World War and cuneiform because Henry Rawlinson, father of General Sir Henry Rawlinson, commander of Fourth Army uh, on the Somme, yeah, basically the general's dad was a um, very prominent Assyriologist and is, was one of the ones involved in cracking and translating cuneiform and discovering a load of stuff and getting it translated. As well, so he's a key guy in our understanding of uh, Mesopotamian culture. It's good. I mean, I quite often, if I go, you know, the two times a year I go to the British Museum, don't go into the Egypt bit. I'd go upstairs straight away and look at the uh, cuneiform stuff because they're great. Yeah, they're look, they always look like, you know, there's a great. You mentioned, um, you know, the letter of complaint. There's also like a contract for the sale of a horse, which ties in with your legal thing as well. But it looks like it's written on a First World War biscuit. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There they are. And you, you, you could either wipe those clay bits clean. It's the ones that they felt really strongly about uh, that they fired up, you know. But also just the, like the art and, you know, the games as well. You know, I've got my own little version of the Royal Game of Ur now 
that that keeps me entertained. Roll your little tetrahedral dice and move your little counters. Yeah, it plays like backgammon if you're interested. You mentioned beer, and the first ever beer advert was found in Mesopotamia as well. Really? It's written on a tablet. It was it was it was written uh, drink Elba, the beer with the heart of a lion. Really? Yeah. That's brilliant. And I then Hockey wants that on a t-shirt. I thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be bass, to be honest, but yeah, okay. No. Oh, I mean, that came up ages ago. Remember when we did that podcast with Pete Brown? That came up in there. So I quickly scurried back and looked at my notes. But also the you know, a lot of stuff happened there, and you mentioned the culture stuff, but also the civilization part is really important. And you talked about farming, but mainly um livestock, but also um agriculture was developed there. Yeah, I think there's it's across the kind of northern Mesopotamia across to quite close to the Mediterranean coast. So it's more kind of like the, the kind of Syria and across to um uh, the Levant. Uh, area where the earliest bits of farming develop. I, on my, when I do my British Museum tours, um, I, I point this out. It's a, it's a. There's a couple of stones from about 9,000 BC, and one's a very kind of flat one, and one's a quite a small one that sort of sits on top. Both are very smooth, and they're both used to grind grain and stuff like that. And bear in mind, you've got the Rosetta Stone, you've got the Parthenon Marbles, and you've got the you know, treasures and treasures and treasures. Here are two rocks to look at. I usually get quite a mixed reception when I when I point these two rocks out, and some people really appreciate it and some people are like okay can we see some shiny things now and then and then putting it really simplistically but it was the advances in agriculture that meant you then had surplus of grain which meant trade could start and money and then that cities yeah. that type of thing isn't it but that's it you know you've got individuals who can then leave uh, the farming and the food production to others and they can concentrate on writing and you can have art and you can have education and you can have record keeping and you can have trade as well and all those things that make an actual civilization happen yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a strong one um, it's a strong one for me it is indeed um but we have basically the usual pissing contest still to come uh, because we have two girly squats and a science nerd left, people. Uh, right, okay. I know which order I want to do this in. I'm going to start with Charlie. Right to reply. I like this. This is good. <laughs> have you ever heard the old one about two guys who are being chased by a wolf? As they're running, one turns to the other and says, we're never going to outrun him. To which the other replies, I don't need to outrun him. I just need to outrun you. So when I bagsied Rome as history's most historic place, our erstwhile judge Holmes said that it was a good shout along with Mesopotamia. So here's why Rome is better than Mesopotamia, with a wolf or two thrown in for good measure along the way. To state the obvious, Rome is still there. Want to visit it? You can. It's a budget airline and a shonky hotel away. It's pretty safe and it is littered with its history, literally. It's everywhere. From the Forum to the Colosseum, the Pantheon to Palatine Hill, you can stand in the surroundings of the Caesars and touch the stones that they may have touched. Sidebar, if you go visiting historic places with me, I'm the one touching the stones and the walls and the windowsills and the door frames because I'm a nerd and a bit of a hippie. Okay, so I'm, I'm that, that um, sailor. Uh, Rome is the birthplace of the world as I know it. I say this in the knowledge that not everyone experiences the world through Western values and politics, but for me, an English woman in her late, late 30s living in Bedfordshire, 
I recognise ancient Rome. I mean, part of that could be because Bedford itself has the largest Italian population of any town in the UK. And, you know, we basically, if we lose to Italy in any any sporting game, we don't care because the town is a party. I recognise ancient Rome in the House of Commons. I recognise ancient Rome in the stories of the Bible I was taught when I was a child. My calendar still celebrates Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus. I recognise ancient Rome when I order a Caesar salad at Cafe Nero. And it blows my tiny mind as an early modern enthusiast to think that when Charles II was sculpted as Caesar in laurels and as Marcus Aurelius on horseback, he was looking to a time some 1500 odd years before his time, which makes the 350 years between us seem like nothing in comparison. Rome has fascinated and inspired every empire, every great leader, every tyrant, every revolutionary since. Every great orator looks to Cicero. Every great general aspires to the Roman military machine. Yes, there were empires before Rome, but as a Western Christian English human, there are none that have had such a profound impact on my life in ways that I probably wouldn't even think to acknowledge until kind of now. There had been writing before, right? But writings of relevance are still being read from ancient Rome today, read, quoted, and paraphrased. But back to Rome as a physical place, a place you can visit, remember? It's still there, and that should be worth a point. The general agreed upon date of the founding of Rome is 753 BC, when twin brothers called Romulus and Remus were abandoned, suckled by a passing wolf, survived to maturity, and then fell out over hillfort placements. Rome is a city of hills. Romulus chose the Palatine and Remus the Aventine, which would have been fine had Remus not made a beeline for his brother's front line, giving him the V sign, and Romulus taken a hard line, killing Remus and becoming the last of their lupine bloodline. Romulus became a king of sorts, and Rome continued on in a similar vein for the best part of 250 years. The city welcomed immigrants, which is a nice way of saying that they welcomed workers to build, maintain and run the city and help themselves to entire populations of women from neighbouring settlements. Generations of Romans grew up out of the violence by the Tiber and organised themselves. They ordered their days around the seasons and counted their citizens periodically in census. Then they decided no more kings and became a republic, fought wars, binned off Alexander the Great and crossed the Alps before Julius Caesar made himself dictator for life and got himself assassinated in the same breath. No, Rome is a republic and that is how it will stay. The death of Caesar inspires Shakespeare, as do the suicides of his greatest and fittest general, Mark Antony, and his queen Cleopatra, but that's in Egypt, so forget I said anything about that. No, Rome is a dictatorship, a great empire run by the great and august Emperor Augustus. Look, we don't have nearly enough time for me to condense the entire history of Rome into a short pitch, but when I'm done and no more here and have 1900 minutes or clear, Ch-ch-Charlie shall speak clear. 2,000 years worth of history is scattered about the streets of Rome. You don't have to pay to see it. It's just lying around, all broken and worn and wonderful. In fact, there is so much there that when I visited, I coined the phrase Roman fatigue to describe the feeling of arriving somewhere and being so excited by seeing antiquities before becoming all complacent and entitled by day three that you're kind of like, oh, another 2,000-year-old piece of art. Boring. 
Just in case you two are starting to tire of too much information, allow me to throw another argument for Rome as our most historic place of Pacha. The influence of the Catholic Church and the Pope in Rome have shaped so much of the world as we know it today. Religion is nothing without organization and the Catholic Church arguably used the machinery of the established Roman Empire to establish itself across the world in a way that it could never have hoped to without the might of that place behind it. From mass conversions to crusades and inquisitions carried out at the behest of the Pope, who was, where was he? Say it with me. He was in Rome. And the art, oh, the art. It's all there, still there in Rome, history's most historic place. She may not have done it first, but she did it better. And there are no prizes for coming first, honey. Art, literature, society, eat it, Mesopotamia. Boom. Mic drop moment. Holmes, are you sold? No. <laughs> well, I, I am. I think it's. I think it's a really, a really strong one. My, my only, my only concern is because, Charlie, as you say, when you go there, there's a lot of it there. Mm. You know, it's wonderful. You go there, and it's brilliant. And you know, you stand there looking at all sorts of stuff. Even I've only been there twice, not very long, and you stand there looking at all sorts of stuff in transport. Even when you don't know what it is, so you know. There's arches everywhere and columns and bits in the bits in the forum that are just tiny bits of building that you've got no real idea what it is. It's more it's sort of more obvious on the Palatine Hill, for example. Um, but it's it's a it is a strong it is a strong contender. I mean, it did have a massive influence. I was trying to work out the sums when you were listening. So I was saying to my you know we were, I was talking about this at home the other day that ignoring Rome, but talking about the Romans for a minute. And that you know they were in, they were in. England for 367 years, which is ages, you know. That means, you know, if they left today, they would have been here since 1655. That's what I was working out, which is an incredibly long period of time, even, even for historical purposes, really. Um, I mean, in terms of what there is to see and walking around, it is quite strong. Also, Athens has got quite a bit of that. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fa fa factually, factually, it has a little bit, you know. Yeah, but Caligula. Can I, can I just win for Caligula? Come on. They got so many temples in Rome that they just use one for a cat sanctuary. Oh, yes. Um, there are cats all over Rome. Um, everywhere. Just can you go to Rome without being born there or dying there? That's another criteria, isn't it? For the, uh, <laughs> well, you have to the find a coin in the Trevi Fountain, don't you, to see if you'll come back. Yeah. But I suppose in terms of civilization, why should it its influence outrank Mesopotamia? Well, it, the thing is that the the way that everything that was created in Mesopotamia was used, so the writing, the art and all of that, I wouldn't recognize it without being taken around the British Museum by an excellent tour guide uh, to, to see it. Whereas the, the work of Cicero and all of that kind of the great speeches, these are happening all the time. This is every single day. Well, not with our current government who can't string a sentence together, but they have happened in, you know, throughout our history. So it's it's there and it's it's so insidious. It's so inbuilt in everything that we are in our culture in this country that you just wouldn't think of that it had come from from when we were when we were just a little outpost of the Roman Empire. Now, I think you mentioned you mentioned the Colosseum, Palatine Hill, the Forum, 
and a Pantheon. Which one would be your favourite? You could only go to one. Pantheon for the homemade paper shop next door. I really liked the forum. I really liked the forum. I went to I went to the Coliseum, but only very briefly because it was a bit, you know, the minute I walked in, there was a, a guy dressed up as a centurion who was doing the thing that you know, are my mother and I sisters. And I just thought, mate. That could have been a ghost. <laughs> it could have been a ghost. Could have, it really could have been a, a ghost. And plus, I tell you, as a, as a blonde walking around Rome, it, it does get a little bit. Yeah, tell, tell me about it. Tell it's me about difficult, it. Difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. <laughs> That's it. I'm rather ashamed that me, me, me and Diane had uh, our photos taken with one of those uh, ghosts. <laughs> They're great fun, but it was. I wasn't there for it. I was only there for a few days, and I just wanted to immerse myself and touch stones and be weird. That's fair enough. <laughs> okay, so Charlie enjoyed muchly watching the look on Lockie's face while she crapped all over Mesopotamia and now Charlie's going to have to take her medicine as well no Beth craps all over Rome <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't crapped on Rome too much because I can't do that to Charlie <laughs> I'll do it to the rest of you but not to Charlie <laughs> Rod, you said crap on Mesopotamia <laughs> it's not it's right okay it's a Beth level burn and we know mu- that's not that's not that's not very much <laughs> that's not much at all um right i'm going to get get into this and hope for the best um i mean i i'm quite confident in this that you all just need to pack up and go home because i think i've won this one um Situated on a plateau in the Judean mountains between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, my most historic place is one of the oldest cities in the world and somewhere that is still lived in today. And throughout its long history has been destroyed at least twice, besieged 23 times, captured and recaptured 44 times and attacked 52 times. The first signs of settlement are from 4000 BCE, in the shape of encampments encampments of nomadic shepherds with the first signs of what would become the city itself in around 3000 BCE. According to the Hebrew Bible, the most historic place in the world, in my opinion, the city of Jerusalem was conquered by the Israelite King David, who established it as the capital of the United Kingdom of Israel and instituted the city as a key point of civilization. Indeed, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, the prophet, states, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the centre of the, of nations with all countries around her. Obviously, as it's Jerusalem, we can't ignore the fact it is the holy city in the holy land. It is incredibly important to the three major Abrahamic religions of Islam, Christianity and Judaism. Um, obviously, we've got the, the Old Testament and many of the prophets being set around Jerusalem. We also then have the New Testament accounts of Jesus's crucifixion, subsequent resurrection all happen in, the, in Jerusalem. In Sunni Islam, Jerusalem is the third holiest city after Mecca and Medina because it's the place in, is, in Islamic tradition where Muhammad made his night journey to Jerusalem in 1621 CE from where he ascended to heaven and spoke to God. As a result of all these events, and then, of course, everything that's happened for all three of those religions, despite having an area of only 0.9 square kilometres, the old city of Jerusalem is home to many sites of seminal religious importance, namely the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, the development of Jerusalem as 
the important place that it becomes, not just from a religious perspective, but from a cultural perspective, is particularly strange. Um, the fact that when the settlement was first being created, um, there was nothing special about it. It was a hill and there was a spring next to it. It was a good place to, to build your settlement, but it's not on any major trade routes of those early um, early years. Um, and it was really, really far from the sea. It was just a mountain in the blistering Judean desert. But it has developed into an extremely important cultural and religious place. One of the key moments in the history of Jerusalem is the siege of the city and in 70 CE, AD, whichever you prefer. Um, it's And it's a really key defining moment in the first Jewish-Roman war, which the Roman army captured the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed the city and destroyed the temple as well, um, which completely ruined life for the Jewish people who lived in, in Israel at the time. Um, the Roman army, who were led by the, the huge Emperor Titus at that time, had besieged the city, um, sieged the city for about five months before they managed to get in and actually destroy it. And this point is really, really important, not just in the history of Jerusalem and the history of Israel, but also in the world itself, because it, it marks the end of Jewish independence whatever, I don't know how you want to word it, it's a difficult subject, marks the end of Jewish independence in the Holy Land. Um, and we don't really see the kind of Jewish state, Jewish entity in that part of the world until 1948. From a perspective of the Roman Empire, after the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem, it meant the Jews were banned from Jerusalem itself um, and was really seen as a withdrawal of the divine favour that had been disposed the divine favour that had been placed, we'll go with placed, placed on the Jewish people by God. Um, it led to a change in the practice of the Jewish religion itself, whereas all, all of the main prayers, you have synagogues and so on, but all of the main prayers were conducted at the temple in Jerusalem. That had to change because the temple was no more. It also meant then as well for Christianity, because at this point in time, Christianity was just a tiny, really a tiny Jewish faction, um, of people who followed Jesus as the new prophet and as the son of God. And when they saw that the temple had fallen, they took this opportunity to separate themselves from Judaism and modern Christianity, as we know it, come from that point. Then, of course, as well, after this siege has gone on, this is the place where, um, as well, because of this siege and because of the moving out of the Jewish population of Jerusalem, um, this convinced Muhammad as part of his development and the creation of Islam that he was the third and final revelation of God. Um, the first had been the Jews, um, the second was Christianity, and then he was the third iteration. So you can say that AD 70, BC, BE, whatever, is when modern religion began in the Western world as we know it. Without that point in time, who knows whether Christianity may have just faded off and just been an offshoot of Judaism that would have gone nowhere, really, maybe had a very select group of followers in that part of the world. Would Islam have developed the way it would? And then would any of the cultural and political um, and religious developments that have happened over the last 2000 years, would they have even happened if that seed in that city had not gone the way that it had. And because the catalyst for what we understand as religion happened in Jerusalem, it means that Jerusalem 
is the birthplace of all of those contributions and all of those developments. It's a tenuous link, I know, but I'm going with it, which also means that Rome has to be discounted as the most historic place because Rome would be nothing without its churches and Christianity, seeing as it all came from Jerusalem. I'm really, really sorry, Charlie. <laughs> but without its churches and without Jesus, and I've been there and as a Catholic, it's very, very beautiful. You've still got the cats, Charlie. It, 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 it's probably not up there. It's not up there, is it? Yes, but who, who killed Jesus? <laughs> the <laughs> Dastard Romans. <laughs> and then, you know, this whole area has been such a, a, you know, I think to say that Jerusalem has been a key point of political and religious strife and heartache and despair and tragedy that's putting it quite mildly of course we've got first we've got the crusades between um obviously the christians and the muslims and fighting for control over the holy land um, which had been taken over by muslim forces when they'd taken control of jerusalem and nazareth and bethlehem and other important religious sites for the christians um which of course they then simply had to go and take back because they're ours how dare they um and that's obviously inflicted a huge cultural aspect at the time, how many thousands, millions of people went to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, to see the Holy City, to save it from the infidels or what have you. Um, and it's believed that all in all, around 1.7 million people were killed as a result of the Crusades, which at that time, that, you know, the 10th, 11th, 12th century would have been a huge chunk of, of, the, of the population that would absolutely have destroyed potentially lots of, of cultures throughout Europe, mainly, of course. <clears throat> it does then fall eventually to the Ottomans, who, you know, I don't need to go into much about what happened. They control the area for 400 years. The collapse of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War creates a bit of a vacuum. The British step in to help um, and create the protectorate. Um, and then eventually fuck off in 1948. And of course, it all goes to pot. It already had anyway, but just got even worse. And I am I'm not an expert on the Israel-Palestine conflict. I do not propose to be. It is a completely insane conflict that I think we can all agree is completely awful. Um, but it's... I w yeah, I can't, I can't go into it because it's just too much in trying to argue for the whys and wherefores of Israel versus Palestine, etc. But Jerusalem continues to be a place of really important historical significance due to the role it has in that conflict. And we can't get away from that. You know, Jerusalem, both sides recognise it as their capital, which obviously is very difficult. Most of the international community accept Israel's claim. Um, well, again, not going to go into that. I don't. I'm not all for that. We're down the pub. It's supposed to be fun. Um, but historically, the settlement and then the city of Jerusalem has played a significant role across the globe. There is no one other location that means as much to as many people as Jerusalem does. One way or another, most people on this planet will have some sort of connection to the city, mostly through their religious convictions. Three of the world's largest religions have their roots in the city, and these religions have formed have formed cultures, countries and conflicts which have all inflicted serious conflict consequences on the rest of the world. But Jerusalem will also be remembered for the role it has played in one of the int most intense and incendiary political crises of all time. 
what seems to be never-ending conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians has Jerusalem and the heart surround, the land surrounding it at its heart. And I must say, I do hope there is some, some sort of peaceful resolution in our time. Jerusalem has survived through sieges, wars and destruction, and I'm sure it will continue to do so, but potentially not in a way we would recognise it today. And just to round off, it's easy to look backwards when talking about the most historic place. However, I want to round off my pitch by doing something that no one else has done this evening and look forward. Look forward to an event that has not yet happened, but will surely clinch this win for Jerusalem. Because not only is Jerusalem one of the oldest cities in the world, seeing more history than any others and still being a place where people reside today, but it is also the only place in the world where, according to all three Abrahamic religions, Judgment Day will start. So we better prepare ourselves down the pub reprobate because Jerusalem is going to go out with a bang and with the way we behave, we're all fucked. Oh, I'm gutted. I really hope you were going to end by announcing that like Eurovision is going to be held in Jerusalem this year or something. <laughs> well, it was in Tel Aviv a couple of years ago. I think Jerusalem might be too far for Eurovision. <laughs> Home, is your mind blown? Um, no, not really. That's partly... <laughs> down to my own ignorance probably a little bit i mean it's um yeah i, I mean also i haven't been there so that's a disadvantage and you know there's been a lot of religious strife there for, for god knows how long i mean and obviously we don't want to go into that but i've also found i also find the crusades quite depressing that was you know there was enough strife there already before we pitched in and started pissing about with it and you know that's sort of the early days of empire building in a way I love that you haven't commented on how depressing Alina's pitch was, but you picked out the Crusades 800 years ago as being quite sad. <laughs> I think I think we all knew Alina's pitch was quite depressing, and we didn't even <laughs> didn't even judge to point it out. <laughs> okay, right. So, Lockie did Mesopotamia. Charlie crapped on Mesopotamia and did Rome. Beth crapped on Rome and did Jerusalem. And Beth's face is not impressed. <laughs> Is, uh, analysis of her pitch uh, but now on, she did she did skip over a little bit because in the last two apart from the, the judgment day ending which was pretty good she basically said Ot ottomans took over in a certain day and then and then we went straight to 1948 in the, about five words i mean i could go back and do the whole thing if you want but we'd be for here for hours i'm <laughs> trying to be succinct but she's like my place is so historic i couldn't do it all <laughs> that's how historic it is basically um but Really, Kit's about to tell you that you've all just been scratching the surface, aren't you, Kit? I am. You see, what is the most historic area in history? We kind of have to go a bit further back, I think. And I've picked the East African Rift Valley, that big scar spreading down from the Horn of Africa to the valleys of Malawi. And there are many reasons I could have chosen it. You know, Paul von Letter Vorbeck, one of the greatest guerrilla fighters in history. We could have <laughs> talked about the Somali, the Berber, the Maasai, all the way to the Zulu. We could discuss Zanzibar or the Bantu expansion. But my pitch goes further back still, much further, into the realms of prehistory. Because this stretch of the planet is where 3.2 million years ago, we had Australopithecus. It is where, in 1974, we found the skeleton of AL2881, or Lucy. 1.1 metres tall, she is the oldest ancestor of humanity. We found other skeletons too, two that are over 10 million years old. 
where we finally diverged from the great ape families and stopped sharing a common ancestor. The Rift Valley in those times was a turbulent cradle. It was the best thing the earth could offer. It was rich and verdant and a primordial mix where we began to take shape. It's where we began to use stone tools. It's where Homo erectus began to spread out from its home, pushing out across the world. But the Rift Valley wasn't done yet, because 300,000 years ago, in the same strip of this magical land where Lucy walked, Homo sapiens emerged. That, in case you're not up with your Latin, is us, humans. It is the first time we existed. And we didn't stay put in Africa. We began to spread out, replacing archaic versions of humanity that had already begun to populate the globe. Other versions of us that could have become dominant. It wasn't overnight. This was a gradual process that took upward of 200,000 years to finally replace Clive's Peking man. But with it, the spread shared that silent miracle, our genetic blueprint. The Rift Valley is the most important site in history, not for a single event, because this isn't a single event affecting a single region. It's not a competition between beautiful cities and thriving cultures. It's important for a span of millions of years that led, quite simply, to the birth of us. The birth of a creature whose fingerprint on the earth is so indelible, we live in a time known as the Anthropocene. A creature who had the intellect to turn its eyes to the skies, to dream and to reach out. A creature that charts the history we are discussing and debating right now. The East African Rift Valley is, quite simply, the genesis of us all. And it doesn't get much more important than that. Short and sweet, Holmes. What I don't get, and you may be able to help me out here. So you mentioned, what was it, AL2881? Uh, yeah, Lucy. Yeah. Yeah, Lucy. How old was how old was she believed to be? Uh, Lucy's about three million years back. Three million years back. Do we have any idea what she looked like? Yeah, we, we've we've reconstructed her. So um, one of the interesting things is, is we start seeing the the evolution onto walking on two legs. Uh, Lucy was, as I, as I mentioned, about one point two one meters tall. Um, she was kind of uh, very similar in terms of structure to as you as you imagine apes. But it's where humanity really begins to start taking form. And she has several key features in her skeleton that we have that apes don't. Um, and this is where you start seeing the first signs of actually humans developing. She's got cheekbones to die for, to be fair. <laughs> she does. She is. She does have cut glass cheekbones. Do we know what was before Lucy? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Holmes. I couldn't hear you there. Probably. Do, do we know? Do we know what was before Lucy, just out of interest? We do. So there are actually several sort of stages of humanity. They all have different names, um, depending on what you want. It's where we diverge from the great ape tree. So if you think about the tree and these branches and where they move off, what's the point where we had a common ancestor? And this is where we break off and we stop having that common ancestor and it starts being what becomes humans. So things like Neanderthals, for example, that's obviously after Lucy. Pre-Lucy, we have different terminology depending on on where exactly we are. Uh, we can only go back, you know, obviously we can go back millions of years. Uh, we can't get much further back than, than 10 million years so far with, with skeletal studies because it's very difficult. But the East African Rift Valley is so rich in fossils that we can pretty much be, be confident that that is where humans 
emerged in several different stages. Uh, it, it just repeats itself constantly where we sort of branch out in the tree. The key point where the branching is happening is the East African Rift Valley. And that's that's where we all, we all our ancestors all originate from there. It wasn't happening anywhere else. No, nope. every single one of us originates from the East African Rift Valley. And from, from there, it spreads out across the world. And again, that's in different stages. So we see uh, the spread out of, uh, of, of Homo erectus. We see the spread out of a second migration, essentially, of Homo sapiens. And also we have what's called the Great Southern Migration, which is a little bit later on where Homo sapiens begins to spread out south rather than north. Um, but all of those stages, every time that there is a replacement that eventually becomes human. And, and bearing in mind, Homo sapiens also interbreeds with with Neanderthal tribes, things like that. There wasn't a sort of a, a total replacement. I, I think you'll find they, my ancestors, they didn't. They didn't. Of course, of course not, Holmes. Um, all of that is, again, it's all originating from the East African Rift Valley. So time and time again, for millions of years, uh, it was the origins of where we came from. Nothing more for me. Mm, pretty special looking at it out of the window of a plane as well, isn't it, Kit? I mean, I... I wish I knew because I have never actually been that far south in Africa. It's no. like the one part of the world I've not been to. Oh, road trip. <laughs> I reckon we could get halfway there before my car dies. If we don't get murdered. I am totally up for it. Do it. It'll be, it'll be like summer holiday. You know, we'll, 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 get, a, <laughs> we'll get a bus. We'll get Cliff like, Richard oh, to oh, drive oh, us. Summer holiday because there'll be ethnic minorities in it. Right. Okay. Let us go around the room while Holmes makes up his mind and find out who you would have gone for if you couldn't have your own. And also as well, uh, Zach, just type in the chat because you can't talk now because you're on like noise pollution things. Kit, he says, wins it for him. So Zach goes with Kit. Lockie. Yeah, so maybe because I've been looking at East Asia quite a lot recently, um, I'm going to go with Clive because I, I think... Um, there's one thing that's kind of struck me about kind of Chinese administration um, and, and part of the reason that, that Korea kicked off is that the Chinese thought of themselves as really important and that's because they're really important. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, yeah, for that, for that reason, five, you got my vote. Excellent. Kate. Um, I think I'm going to go with Lockie's choice of Mesopotamia. Because it seems like a lot of the other choices wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that, maybe. Fair shout. Um, Alina? I'll give you a guess. Medway? Medway. Yes. Medway. Medway. <laughs> you know what? Just for the spirited way in which it was done and the fact that he managed to get Titanic's Nazis, Sex and Judas in there, uh, I'm going to go with my Medway tour guide buddy and go with Chris as well. Look at his little face. <laughs> Chris, who would you go for? Um, mine's tainted with a little bit of, of guilt. Um, in 1944, the German army withdrew from Rome, leaving it as an open city to preserve for posterity. In 1944, the German army fucked Warsaw royally. And as I'm wearing a German hat, I feel moved to vote for Warsaw purely for, through war guilt. It's got nothing to do with war guilt and war guilt. <laughs> but okay Clive well I, I, I was looking to what subjects do I did think of going for Istanbul Constantinople Byzantium but I didn't and I'm glad that 
it was done so well instead. But having listened to all of these, the one that really struck me was the one, actually, I don't know, what was the name of the place? I can't remember. The one that Jane said, I've got no idea where it was or what it <laughs> is to do. But I think that's got to be the one. <laughs> that place where no one's ever been, no one ever dies, no one's ever born, and no one knows the name or can point to it on a map. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Heather, who would you go for? I mean, they were all really, really good. Um, I definitely loved Chris's, Clive's, and Kit's. So, um, whew, you have to say Clive. But Chris was a really good contender, and I love me some some good kit science stuffs. Indeed, I honestly I'd never heard or seen uh, never heard of or seen Lucy before either, and that's pretty special. I like that. Uh, Beth has got her. You see, Beth has no poker face, and Beth's got her. I'm not going to win face on, which is smiling but wants to kill you all. Uh, I'm more pissed off at the moment that no one's voted for me, and Chris has got two. <laughs> <laughs> James has got one. James has got one as well. I want to remind you of all the chocolate I gave you in my car in Belgium. You didn't give me any chocolate in your car. Mini egg bar. Oh, the mini egg bar. And don't tell me you didn't find the. I freaking. I hid a bag of biscotti in your rucksack for the journey home that you've not even mentioned. What? Go down your backpack. I hid sweet treats in there, you fool. Who would you vote for? Um, on, you went. You went to. You went to Belgium and had mini egg bars. Fucking <laughs> guys. Yeah, mini, mini eggs. Mini eggs. Bel- Belgium. No, seriously, the mini egg bar was basically to get us to Folkestone. Yeah. We forgot to eat it, but it was to get us to Folkestone. We are surrounded by actual Belgian chocolate, like. Um, yeah, there is there is a multitude of Belgian chocolates that kept getting shoved in our hands that we didn't really want. It was like, oh no, more of it. Um, <laughs> anyway. I appreciated it was. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd I'd have to go with Lucky because Mesopotamia it was an awesome shout. Like that's just yeah, come on, at least someone loves me. <laughs> Um, it's just a good, really good shout. Backpack. I can't believe that you. I, can't, I haven't found them. I'm gonna have to go and find them now. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> let's not pretend that this isn't like Eurovision, and they're on. You know. Yeah, it's absolutely going on in like Eurovision. Um, I I already sold my vote. I sold my vote for the promise of getting the phrase "the nefarious Dutch" in his pitch. So <laughs> I'm I'm with Chris in the Medway. <laughs> I think Chris is basically winning at the moment. Kit. Um, I loved uh Clive's pitch for Beijing. I loved um Beth and and, and Charlie and 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 Lockie. But I, I, I want to give a shout out to Kate because I thought her her eloquence about Gibraltar, which I've been to. I mean, Gibraltar is basically a rock with some monkeys and some navy people on it. And you can tell the difference because one's got, you know glow-in-the-dark red balls, and the other ones are monkeys. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to give the shout-out to Kate. Kate, you need to read a book called The End of the World Survivors Club. Okay. Uh, the first one is called The End of the World Running Club, 
And it's basically post-apocalyptic stuff. But in the second one, Gibraltar has been turned into a fortress uh, for surviving humans. But there is a millionaire yacht owner bastard hanging around trying to get everybody kicked out. But yeah, The Rock is a star of this book. So you need to read it. Oh, my God. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll check it out. Definitely. The monkeys are not in there, though, and it makes me... Yes, the monkeys are important. They are. Holmes. It's a tricky one, actually, because I know you thought you were putting the strongest three last. But I, I, just, I wanted to cross them over so they all crapped on each other's pitches. <laughs> it, hasn't quite, it hasn't quite worked like that. And, I, and then it might be down partly to my own ignorance. I mean, I thought Kits was really interesting, but I think if we just go on the point, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have anything else. I don't think we can pick it on that alone, basically. And I feel sorry for Beth because she's been looking looking at me with terrible looks since the end of her pitch and it still isn't looking at me now actually but that's possibly <laughs> down to my possibly down to my own ignorance I mean when I have a co-judge normally we I've never not agreed with a co-judge on the top three we might tweak the order around a little bit but this one might be different if there was another judge but anyway without further ado I'm putting Alina in third place because I thought that was a really interesting and strong pitch oh thank you and there's probably consequences we're still feeling from the, you know, from the, it's 20th century only, pretty much the consequences we're feeling, but they were fairly significant. Um, the next two were hard, but I'm putting Charlie in second, which I really struggled to split them, but I was just thinking, well, I'm, I, would, I would only go Rome because I've seen bits of it, and that's possibly a little bit unfair, because I think Mesopotamia had a Dad. probably a larger impact overall. Victory is lovely, oh. very, very smug. Um, I can't remember what the next topic is. Can any of you? Beth's like, no, and I don't give a shit. <laughs> I, I, I'm really not hoping. I, I, wanna, I want to incite a mutiny against this judge now. <laughs> Clive will I, haven't, I haven't been there. Well, we haven't been to the moon either, but the moon's pretty great. So <laughs> Nobody nominated the moon. I'm a, I should have done the moon. <laughs> it's not very historic, though, is it? I mean, it's there. Oh. It's the 60s. <laughs> I mean, of course, tides for a long time. Until a few years ago. No boats without tides. There's there's a Nazi space station on the moon, according to Iron Sky. Oh, that film is excellent. I changed my answer to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) There's a a London bus up there as well. Yeah. Right. Okay. Enough. Uh, Until next time, when hopefully Beth would have stopped sulking. Uh, and Lockie will have sobered up because I have a feeling he's going to go and have a few drinks now because victory is his. The, that looks like a pea sample. I don't know what you're drinking, Lockie. <laughs> it's a vegan beer. Well, then you deserve you deserve to be drinking a pea sample because it probably tastes <laughs> Okay, until next time, and we will see you then. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack. Or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. And here's to your next great book. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.